Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Cool Zone Media. Hey, everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to It Could Happen Here. This is Shireen, and I am so excited to be joined by author and journalist Sim Kern. Their latest novel, The Free People's Village, is available now, so go to your local bookstore and order it and support a voice that I believe we all need in our zeitgeist right now. Um, So welcome, Sim. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. For those of you who don't know, Sim has been making videos recently about the genocide in Gaza from a queer Jewish anti-Zionist perspective. And this is one that I think a lot of people need to be exposed to and to listen to. I mentioned this to you before the recording, but a Jewish friend of mine told me how much she connected with your voice and how much she's learned from you and how your videos have been helping her approach really awkward and difficult conversations with her peers. So I appreciate you very much. Happy to do whatever I can. When you decided to start making like the first video that got a lot of attention, like were you seeing something that you wanted to like make sure you correct in the zeitgeist? Like what was your perspective as a Jewish person? Well, this is the first video that I made was encouraging people to read books by Palestinian authors um, just to learn about the Palestinian perspective, which is so often um, censored and not really allowed in, in our media. Um, and also which you really have to go seek out in publishing. And this isn't the first time I've done this since I think 2017 or something was the first time I created Read for Palestine Challenge on YouTube. And just creating this Read for Palestine Challenge was enough to get me put on the Canary Mission website and like outed as a as a anti-Semite by this very Zionist website that of course a, a block list of mostly students who organize with like students for justice in Palestine 
and really anyone who speaks out publicly uh, against Israeli apartheid. So simply like encouraging people to read these books, I think is really powerful. And I know for me, growing up Jewish in the United States, I was just inundated with a lot of um, Zionist propaganda from my more conservative family. My more liberal family would take the line of like, it's just very complicated. Mm -hmm. Both sides hate each other. Who can say who's right? And it was only by reading Palestinian voices that I really developed an anti-Zionist perspective. That's awesome that you did the Read for Palestine challenge, but also like not surprising about the Canary Mission thing, unfortunately. But I'm glad that that didn't stop you or discourage you. When you started to learn more about Palestine, how did you approach conversations with your friends and family? Again, like, I guess initially... It's different talking to friends and family than it is talking to the internet. Honestly, it's much easier, I think, sometimes to connect with the internet because there's not that like personal connection. I think I've made more headway and had a much greater impact <laughs> online than I have with certain friends and family members. But, you know, I do think that everyone having those conversations, putting your beliefs out there, whether it's one on one and face to face conversations or whether it is doing it online where like certainly your friends and family are going to see the things that you're um, posting and the things that you care about. It has a, a great impact. And like, I've definitely noticed friends of mine over time who maybe a few intense bombing campaigns ago were very checked out on this issue are now very um, active and are, and are speaking out themselves. And so that's, I guess that would be my message to other like anti-Zionist Jews is even if the first time you're putting stuff out there about Palestine, it feels like no one's listening. It feels like, you know, you're not making a difference. Um, over time, you're planting the seeds of like questioning the Western media's, you know, pro-Israeli perspective over time. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. But my friend also mentioned she would never have been exposed to your voice if I, if I didn't share it or pe if people were not sharing it. So I think People really underestimate the value of social media sometimes or mm. speaking up on social media. They're just like, oh, people are already talking about it or whatever, but everyone has a community they can reach that no one else can reach. So I think that's important to remember. You made some points in some videos that you made that I would love for you to not like regurgitate, but maybe just like cover for people that haven't watched your videos or are just unaware in general. I think a really important point you made was how suffering is not monopolized or exclusive or any worse or better than other people's suffering, if, regardless of what identity they are. Uh, can you get into that a little bit? Yeah. So I made a video uh, that was actually responding to a comment by someone saying, like, how dare you compare the suffering of Palestinians to the suffering of Jews? Um, how dare you compare genocides that that's disgusting and that cheapens mm -hmm. um, the Holocaust. And that that was, again, I think, responding to a video where I was saying, like, read about other genocides besides the Holocaust, because I think it just again, as a Jewish American, I grew up steeped in Holocaust literature. I read every book I could about it. You know, I think a lot of Jewish kids, by the time we're adolescents, we have like this Ph.D. level knowledge of the Holocaust. I think that our peers who are non-Jewish maybe don't have quite as much exposure and understanding of the Holocaust, but that is often the only genocide that is taught in U.S. schools. And so 
there's a narrative that the the suffering of the Jews and the persecution of Jews is uniquely specific and that it was all about the religion. It's something about Judaism itself is why we've been persecuted. Well, I, as an author, I'm, I'm, currently I'm writing a book on Jews in the 17th century, and I've just done a ton of research on medieval and early modern Jewish history. And of course, there was religious hate, but it was motivated by, and I contended in this video, that all genocides are motivated by land and wealth and power. And the hate is manufactured by people in power to justify taking people's land and wealth and to solidify their own power as rulers. And the Christian church used this against um, Jews in the medieval and early modern period. And in our times, it's uh, there. there's no one religion that has a monopoly on committing genocide. You know, um, there's no one state and because really it's states that are that are committing genocide um, that you know, it's, it's not directed to one people. So I've encouraged people to read books about here in the United States, obviously, the genocide of the native peoples, um, the Congolese genocide. You know, I just recommended a couple different titles, um, the Rwandan genocide for a more recent example. And uh, it is I reject the framework that you can't make comparisons between genocides. I think that keeps us ignorant. I keep think that keeps us from being in solidarity with one another and understanding the mechanisms of power and control and wealth accumulation that underlie all of these genocides. And I do believe what is happening in Palestine right now is a genocide being committed by the Israeli state. Yeah. And also really good point about justifying it by creating all the people in Palestine as, as barbarians or terrorists or this, this rhetoric that becomes really dangerous and harmful. And as we've seen like people can die, a 60-year-old can die from this rhetoric. Right. And Yahoo just said, this is a struggle between children of light and children of darkness. Like that, is, that is genocidal believe. rhetoric. I cannot believe that tweet. And I mean, he deleted it, but I mean, the internet is forever. I just can't believe that was, a, a, that is so normal for him to tweet just confidently, even at, even at one point, just to say that out loud. I think that's absurd and also just like to see how uh, Yoav Gallant has been saying like human animals or referring to Palestinians in such a dehumanizing way. Um, you mentioned something really important that I think I appreciated about how maintaining the dehumanization of the Palestinians is vital to maintain the white supremacist imperialistic thing that is Israel. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think that was me trying that came out of me trying to understand why there was such backlash when I first when I first years ago started recommending people read Palestinian books is because when you read a book by a Palestinian author, it is going to humanize the Palestinian people for you. Um, and that is incredibly threatening. Uh, and Palestinian authors face a ton of discrimination within publishing. I mean, look at um, what was it earlier this week? Uh, the Frankfurt Book Festival pulled a, or canceled a ceremony for a Palestinian author, Adania Shibley, and then has made more time for Israeli voices and Israeli-specific panels at that book festival. Um, and simply because she's a Palestinian, she writes books dealing with real, factual Palestinian history. Um, and her books are critical of Israel, 
But the the silencing of Palestinian voices is a, is a, is a global project. It is across all media industries. You see it in you know traditional book publishing as well as journalism. Um, another an author friend of mine, Hanin Oricot, has had the hardest time. She's been on sub with her book, and she's been told by multiple editors to change the main character from a Palestinian character to just an, a generic Arabic character because being Palestinian is seen as inherently too controversial to publish. Yeah, I, I read that. I That's just, I mean, again, not completely surprised, but just so shameful that that is something that is still happening in these modern times. I think another thing to remember is a lot of people get confused between the differences between being non-white and white in the scope of like this world. I guess it just it seems so obvious that colorism and racism both exist in today's world. And I really liked what you mentioned about the difference between colorism and racism. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So I was explaining that in the Western media, Israelis are treated as white and Palestinians are treated as non-white. Um, and it really is regardless of the color of your skin. So a lot of people giving me pushback on that comment say, oh, but there's black and brown and white Israelis. Um, yes, and in the racist apartheid state that is Israel, people of different skin tones are treated very differently within Israel. We've seen a- there was forced sterilization of African Jews mm-hmm. immigrating to Israel. But when it comes to the Western media, our view of the conflict is not as nuanced as as recognizing those differences. And so I was explaining that colorism is, you know, discrimination based on the color of your skin. Racism is a racial construct. It's about social, economic, and legal discrimination. And while colorism is often used to determine racism, um, that's not always 100% the case. And in the case of Israel, when you're talking about the Western media looking at Israel, they report on Israelis as people, as people who are to be mourned, as people who are, um, whose deaths are important, as people whose lives are valuable. And they report on people in Gaza, Palestinians, as, you know, uh, human shields is the most sympathetic way we hear them talked about. Um, Their deaths are not deemed important. They are not humanized within the media. If they're killed, they're either combatants or they were a human shield. They were someone being used by combatants and their deaths are, you know, maybe the lip services paid to those deaths being regrettable, but they're seen as necessary and not, um, not unconscionable in the way that deaths in Israel are reported on. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point about the media and how important semantics are. I think something that we've been seeing time and time again is how deep the dehumanization goes, like Israelis have been killed versus Palestinians have died. The Gaza Strip is being referred to, I've seen it as an enclave. Oh my God. Um, you know, an enclave <laughs> yeah. where, where terrorists lurk. So yeah, the words used to describe the city of Gaza, the words used to describe um, people as combatants, Mm-hmm. The words like, you know, Palestinians die in a clash. When that clash was racist Jewish settlers with machine guns coming after them, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Passive um, voice does a lot of work. It does. It does. I mean, we've seen it just recently with the hospital bombing, how the New York Times changed their headline like three times from strike and then to 
Blast, I believe, was what they landed on, Blast, um, which I just find honestly comical when I really think about it too hard. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren came out and condemned (laughs) Blasts. (laughs) Like, that is just so... Just the passive voice is so dangerous because it really... It really obfuscates the truth, which is that Palestinian people are dying of genocide. Even calling it a war or a conflict Mm. does not do what's happening justice because it still implies there are two equal sides that are fighting against each other versus an occupier, an oppressor versus the occupied, the oppressed. So Mm. I think semantics are so important for us to keep in mind, even when we're talking about it with our peers, to make sure that we talk about it in the correct way because... I feel like it unconsciously becomes ingrained in us, even if we don't realize it, when we keep talking about certain things, um, the way the media wants us to talk about them as a conflict or as a clash or whatever it is. And something else that I've really tuned into is really being careful not to pit this as a struggle between Muslims and Jews. Any framing like that is is both Islamophobic and anti-Semitic and incredibly inaccurate. This is about an ethno state, a nation state, an apartheid state, which is Israel, um, targeting its captive population. Um, and uh, it is and there are Palestinians who are of all different faiths who are discriminated against because they are Palestinians within um, occupied Palestine. So. Uh, like, for example, I, it just came to my attention that there are some in the I, I'm a book talker. My my book talk channel is Bookstagram um, is mostly what I do is just, you know, share about books for folks to read and share about the books I'm working on. And some of my fellow book talkers have been recommending people read books by both Palestinian and Jewish authors so they can show both sides. A Palestinian author, Hannah Mushabek, just wrote a great letter to sort of call in our community and explain this is a very this is very anti-Semitic to conflate Judaism with Israel, with the policies of Israel. You know, yesterday we saw 500 Jewish uh, activists get arrested in the Capitol building here in D.C. in protest and demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. So there are many, many anti-Zionist Jews. Um, Judaism and Zionism are not the same thing, but conflating them gives Israel more power and and gives it uh, a, a stronger moral foothold to say, oh, we're representing all Jews, not just this, this state. So that's something also to be really careful about is to not pit this as a Muslim versus Jewish fight because it's it's not. It's about Israel, the state versus Palestinian people. Yeah, that's vital to remember let's take our first break right here and we'll be right back and we are back you were just talking about how this is just 100 not a religious issue and i think talking about semantics again i framing it as a religious issue is another way for people to stop talking about it to be too afraid to to get into this complicated ancient battle of all time this archaic thing that we can't even get into because we can't understand it I think the Zionist narrative wants us to believe it's about religion so people can ignore what's actually going on and be too scared to speak out. It's like time and time again, something that I want to remind people is that it's not Muslim versus Jewish, which is is what it gets framed by most of the time. Mm -hmm. But speaking of Zionism, 
and how it's not equated to the Jewish religion at all. If anything, Zionism is anti-Semitic in and of itself. Um, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. yeah, I believe Zionism makes all Jews so much more unsafe. Yeah, it's it's also rooted in a lot of anti-Semitism. Even the way it was, even the way the state of Israel was created was Europeans being like, "Hey, Jews, can you go here?" <laughs> it wasn't this gift to the Jewish people. It was also about to be in Africa, which I find fascinating. And also, I think people always forget the majority of Zionists in the United States are evangelical Christians. That is 100% accurate. That's why they support Zionism. And it's because they want all the Jews to go to Israel for the rapture to happen. It is the most like comic book idea I've ever heard. And everyone just goes along with it. Yeah. That brings me to another thing you brought up in your videos about needing a homeland. I think what you discussed is really important because because of this narrative that a lot of Zionists teach to Jewish people about how they're constantly being persecuted, I think people are led to believe that Israel is their safe haven. Like if like if all else fails, I have I have Israel to go back to, that is my home. Even like American Jews that have no connection to Israel really. Why, in your opinion, do the Jewish people not necessarily need a homeland? Right. Well, I made that video speaking to other like other leftists. I was addressing Mm -hmm. other leftists. So I think if you agree with me on the premise that everyone should have a safe place to live and everyone should have equal rights, which I think are two pretty, pretty basic tenets of of being a leftist, um, then you just can't have anybody having a theocratic ethnostate, which is what Israel is. De facto. I mean, they say they're not, but that is how they act and how that is how that country is run. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people misinterpreted that video as, as you know, which I kind of tried to argue with me saying, but there's other theocratic ethnostates. Yeah, but I'm saying, yeah, if you're a leftist, you should think that's bad everywhere because a theocratic ethnostate is an inherently fascist construct. It's an inherently saying one religion and or one ethnicity in the case of the way Israel interprets Judaism, um, these people are more valuable and are more citizens here and have more rights here than everybody else. And that is just incompatible with with leftist values, I think. And so I the point of that video is nobody should have um, a theocratic ethnostate. And this is a line that I've heard even some leftist Jews saying, well, oh, we, you know, this is a complicated issue because Jews need a homeland. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry, our world is just too heterogeneous, too diverse. Um, you know, migrations have been going on for tens of thousands of years all over the place. There's no one plot of land on earth anymore that you can carve out and say, okay, just this one type of people are going to get to live here and be citizens here and have rights here. Um now, I'm an anarchist personally, so I when I say no theocratic ethnostates, I'm also like in a bigger picture way saying like no states would be <laughs> the ideal for me. But certainly theocratic ethnostates are even worse within that framework um, compared to like liberal democracies or something. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 that, that was a video that was like intended to be an in-group conversation. Um, and then it got a million views and got, cause my following has like really exploded over the last week. So I wasn't expecting it to go so far. And so, uh, for people who idealize ethno states like Japan or Sweden, 
they were really having a hard time with me with me saying that and thinking it was really anti-Semitic for me to say, oh, I don't think Jews should have theocratic ethnostate. But no, I think nobody should have a theocratic ethnostate. That's a really good point to make. It's, I mean, it goes back to the idea of uh, Jewish suffering being more valuable in some way than other suffering. I think it continues this hierarchy of sorts. And everything you described about people not being treated the same and not having enough rights, that's all apartheid. I think people forget, like, Israel is committing the definition of apartheid and has been against the Palestinian people. Um, and I find it weird that, I mean, Amy Schumer <laughs> posted this crazy video proving in her words that it's not an apartheid state, actually, and how people have all the rights in the world, when in reality, it's shameful. Yeah, it's like the UN, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch are all saying this is an apartheid state, but okay, Amy Schumer. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> it's not actually that complicated. It's really not. I've been really appreciating Amanda Seals. She did like a reaction video to what Amy Schumer posted and like laid out all the racist reasons why actually apartheid is what you would call that. I think something that has bothered me within the both sides thing is this is not a term that I hear often anymore, but like the progressive except Palestine. I think the mm-hmm. that idea has been really damaging because it makes it seem like you can still be so liberal and progressive and still not really recognize that Palestinians are being genocided for almost a century. Yeah. And, and this is just so frustrating because Again, what you're seeing in Palestine, it's so stark. The violence is so obvious um, and it's so egregious. And there's all these social justice, you know, organizations and accounts that I follow. There's like queer Jewish liberation accounts who've said nothing about Palestine. There's um, also non-Jewish, just queer, you know, all sorts of queer liberation, queer activists out there, uh, which is like a whole nother network that I'm tapped into. And many of them are staying silent on this genocide. And it's like we are all fighting the same evils, the same type of oppression. And if you want people to stand with you when your rights are being taken away, you got to stand with everybody else. That's the only way intersectionality is the only way that we can overcome these enormous forces of oppression in the world. So, yeah, it's it's been very frustrating to see just how many, you know, anti-racist organizations queer liberation organizations are just staying completely silent on Palestine. Yeah, I have been really frustrated about that as well, because it encourages this sort of selective outrage um, that is reserved for certain kind of people that are deemed as human versus the people that are not. I really believe one of the most powerful voices in the fight for Palestinian liberation are Jewish anti-Zionists, because they can speak to what people deem is the source of that problem from a different place. But I I hope you realize how important your voice is just in general, especially now. And yeah, I just really thank you for what you've been doing. Because it's kind of scary too, I'm sure, to suddenly have a big platform and have all these people analyzing everything you're saying and trying to find little holes in in your arguments. Um, But I appreciate that you're not backing down. Yeah, it's been a trip. I went from 6,000 to 180,000 followers on Instagram in like a week. I didn't realize um, that you started at 6,000. I was wondering about that. That is a crazy jump. 
Yeah, it, it happened really, really fast. And on TikTok too, I had I had fifty thousand on TikTok just from my like book talk author talk account, which I've been you know growing over the course of two years. And then it went. Now it's like at one hundred fifty thousand, so it like tripled on TikTok. Um, but yeah, it's definitely made me more careful about what I say. Like again, I had that one video that was sort of like an in group comment mm-hmm. to leftists because I'm used to being on like the leftist side of TikTok and then realizing, oh, crap, like everything I say is going to go out to like absolutely every single kind of audience. So I need to like really think about the context of what I say and um, that it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it sounds really overwhelming and you've been navigating it well. And I don't know. I really appreciate you. Before we wrap this up, I would love for you to talk about your work a little bit, maybe your book where people can find it, where they can support you in your work. The platform is all yours. Uh, Yeah, so I actually had a book come out about a month ago called The Free People's Village, and it is relevant to this topic. It's um, a very leftist book. It's about a punk band organizing to save their warehouse uh, from demolition to make room for a new electromagnetic hyperway in an alternate timeline where Al Gore won the 2000 election and... um, declared a war on climate change instead of a war on terror. But it's a book that's really critical of neoliberal politics. So this solar punk utopia that's been created, this world has really only impacted wealthy white neighborhoods while leaving everybody else behind. So it's a book about centering racial justice within climate organizing. And the final scene of the book actually takes place at a free Palestine protest. And so that's definitely like a presence throughout the book. And based on experiences I've had organizing with uh, the incredible um, Students for Justice in Palestine and Palestinian youth movement organizers that we have here in Houston. So for people who are listeners of this podcast, I do think they would enjoy the Free People's Village. And you can get it. uh, The best place to get it is always your local indie bookstore, of course. Uh, You can also support your local indie bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org. Um, which allows you all the convenience of ordering online, but you get to pick your favorite indie bookstore to benefit. Um, And then, of course, you can get it also from all of the big corporate retailers. And it's available um, in hardcover and ebook and audiobook. And you can find me online at at SimKern on TikTok. And if you search SimKern, it's at SimBookstagrams badly on Instagram, but if you just search Sim Kern, I'll I'll pop up on Instagram. And that is S-I-M-K-E-R-N for people that don't know. Yes. Just to leave us with something that we can take away from this, do you have any advice for people that are trying to open up these discussions with their peers and how should they approach them? And I don't know. I think uh, these conversations are essential to humanizing Palestinians again. So do you have any advice before we sign off? Um, You know, same advice, which was the first piece I gave, which was just to read a lot and learn a lot and seek out those Palestinian voices. Also, um, Jewish Voice for Peace, if you go to their jvp.org website, they have a ton of like great tools and kits for learning how to talk about Palestine. And so I would say, you know, always be learning and reading Um, If you feel like you don't have the language yet to have these conversations, like you said, it's really powerful to repost things by 
you know, commentators that you respect, um, journalists on the ground in Gaza right now who are doing amazing, courageous work, just letting people know what is happening and putting something out that disrupts an imperialist narrative can be really, really powerful. Uh, thank you for saying all of that because it's really needed. And um, I will put in the description all the info to where you can follow Sim and their work. And maybe I can put some recommendations for Palestinian books as well. And yeah, that's the episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Free Palestine. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings, podcast enthusiasts. It's me, James, a man who has uh, commenced his one-man war against Qatar Airlines who uh, detained me against my will for most of the last two days in a very mm-hmm. small part yeah. of a very big plane. See, there's a, there's a, you know, 
airlines from Middle Eastern countries are are usually like the best airlines are like Royal Jordanian and and Air Emirates. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's if it's owned by a, a king, it's usually a safe bet. Um, but but Qatar Airways <laughs> that's what like, they say about England breaks that mold proudly breaks that mold. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fuck me. Uh, one of the one of the less pleasant experiences available to a human being that doesn't end in death is a thirty six hour trip uh, from Kurdistan yeah. to uh, Southern no. California, which uh, see I've I, just enjoyed. I always enjoyed those trips back from Air Emirates because when you're on the Air Emirates flight, if you ask the uh, the the steward or whatever mm-hmm. to uh, yeah. to to if if you if you tell him, hey, I would like eight shots of vodka and four glasses of orange juice, he'll just give it to you. <laughs> Like not even a question, not even a question. And so yeah. have I vomited on a couple of Air Emirates flights? Yes. Is it always a good time? Probably. You, you yeah. don't remember. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. See, I was at the point of frustration where like, and I'm, I'm as an English man, uh, if, if I become frustrated and drunk, then my instinct is to fight everyone uh, or throw bottles. And I thought that that would probably mm-hmm. result in, in mm. uh, further detention. So decided yeah. against decided against becoming bladdered uh, or it could have st- started singing i guess that's the other option available to me uh, that sure. f- fits my culture um yeah so we're not here to talk about uh, things that i like to do in my free time uh, as much as i would like love that but we are here to talk about uh, things that i have been seeing in my work time when i was traveling uh, to kurdistan last couple of weeks um, kurdistan for people who are not familiar is, is a big area uh, the area where Kurdish people live, uh, and it, it spans several countries. The areas I went were in Iraq and in Syria, or in it's not really in, I guess, Syrian regime territory, but it's, if you look on the map. Yeah, northeast Syria, known as Rojava. The other two parts yes. that are generally considered part of Kurdistan are a, chunk, a big chunk of southern Iran and also a big chunk of southern Turkey. Yeah. Um, so Rojava just means west. Uh, I think Rojalat is east, eastern Kurdistan. Um, so yeah, I've spent the last several, uh, last week and change in that area. And while I was there, the Turkish state began a massive drone bombing campaign, uh, which is what we are gathered here today to discuss. So for people who are not familiar, uh, it's four years almost to the, this drone bombing campaign started almost four years to the day since Turkey's invasion of what they call the M4 Strip. Uh, so that's uh, the area around Sarakania and Tel Abiyad. Uh, we've talked about that before on the podcast. So if you want to know more about that, uh, you can go back and listen to it. Um, it's it's the area along the border, uh, one of the areas along the border be- between Turkey and, and Syria. Um, and as as people will know, uh, Syria is a country that has had a long and terrible civil war, um, which they've heard about in lots of episodes, right? And we're not talking about that today so much as we're talking about the Turkish state's use of drones to bomb what people generally in this country will know as Rojava, right? So just to give some statistics off the top, um, this is the fourth year in a row of aggression at this time of year, right? Um, so there have been two land attacks, um, I think Operation Olive Branch and Operation, the other one called Peace Spring. Uh, and then two years, the last two years, there have been drone strikes at this time of year. Where at this time of year, it, it seems very hard not to conclude that these are attempts to destroy civilian infrastructure and make it very hard for people in the cold months of the year. Um, 
So right now, around 2 million people in northeast Syria are going to be without power and without water. And I experienced some of that when I was there. And the places I stayed were runoff generators. And so you'd have like intermittent power, you'd have power for a bit, and then they'd put some petrol in the generator and the power will go down or the generator would uh, have a little tantrum and the power would go down. Um, but generally, I, I had a lot better access to power than some people had and a lot better access to water. Um, um, so as I was traveling around, I noticed some people didn't have access to, to like running water, right? They can't turn on the tap and get water. Obviously, that's a massive problem. It's something I think, like, as people are listening to this, uh, Israel is also bombing the shit out of uh, Gaza, um, the whole of uh, the Gaza Strip, right? And um, the US recently intervened to ensure that people there had access to water. And they have done very little in the case of protecting people in North and East Syria, right? So across this drone campaign, 48 people have died. And in the worst, or I guess the highest casualty producing strike was one uh, that happened while I was there. 29 Asaish. Uh, Asaish are like internal security forces. Sometimes you'll see it translated as police, but I don't think that's quite accurate. Like that they don't do cop shit. Like, like they're not there to... Uh, you know, like like arrest you for parking in the wrong place, or and then you know, do the things that cops do. Uh, they're there largely as like internal security due to the the various uh, non-state armed groups that are in the area and state armed groups, I guess, that are, that are operating in the area that would make things dangerous for people living there. Um, so these particular Asaish were anti-narcotics Asaish, and again. Why I'm grounding this in what they do is because they're not the people who like uh, send you to jail for the rest of your life for, for like having a, an ounce of weed. They're the people whose job it is to prevent the trading captagon. Uh, will people know? Do people know what captagon is? Absolutely not. Think. Yeah, it's Absolutely. uh, it's it's uh, yeah. it's one of the drug. I mean, it's the, when you when you hear about drug interdiction forces yeah. like like police in Rojava, they're going after captagon. <laughs> It's um yeah. a big chunk of both what kept ISIS. It's it's the it's the pervitin, you know, the the meth yeah. that Nazis took that I, for ISIS, right? Yeah. And it was also a big chunk of how they got their funding was was moving. Yeah. And the Assad regime also gets a piece of a lot of the the Captagon trade. Mm-hmm. It continues to fund these like largely these like Islamist insurgent groups right in the area because it's small and it's high value. Uh, and like Robert says, to give it to their fighters. Uh, it's this is very common like around the world. Uh, we we discuss this in Myanmar too, right? That the, the military there take um, something else called yaba, but it, these these kind of meth derivatives are very common, and they're very commonly sold. That's how a lot of these non-state armed groups get money to buy stuff, right? So when we're talking about uh, drug interdiction, it's not done in a vacuum. It's not done because like uh, they think that necessarily the drugs are bad uh, or that you know there's some kind of moral failure that comes from the use of these substances it's because it allows funding for groups that are trying to kill people uh, on the ground so like interdicting the drugs is part of an anti-terrorism operation that allows people to live safely which is what they deserve after 10 plus years of war in that area um, so 29 people is a lot of people, right? 29 anti-narcotics as issues is a lot of the people who do that job. It's going to make it significantly harder for them to continue doing that job, which means it's going to make it significantly easier for those armed groups to get funding, right? It's also, so while I was there, there was a massive funeral for these people, right? Every town, every like settlement across um, Rojava has lost somebody in that strike, right? So in Kamishlo, in in Kobani, 
in Alhasica. Like all these places had big funerals because, you know, three or four or 10 people came from that town. Uh, and like that's, I saw a little girl like uh, going to her dad's funeral, right? Like a little girl holding a picture of her dad. And it, it's pretty fucked up. Like it's hard for that not to affect you. Uh, especially as like these people weren't fighting anyone. They weren't attacking anyone, right? They were just, uh, they were taking a training. They were taking an anti-narcotics training at night and uh, 60 of them were gathered in this building. 29 were killed, 28 were injured. Um, and it's in the sort of furthest northeast um, part of North and East Syria, around a town called Derek, um, which is on the border there, Derek. Al-Malakai. Yeah. Derek, yeah, probably my yeah. pronunciation is ass. Um, Al-Malakai, it might say on the map, if, if you're looking on Google Maps, if you're trying to work out where this is. Um, lots of these places, the reason they will have two names is Kurdish and Arabic, right? And so like under the previous Assad regime, uh, like Arabic was the sort of language that people were enforced to speak and use. Uh, and now under... The self-administration, people tend to use Kurdish and they tend to use um, a Latin script as opposed to an Arabic script, right? Um, so that's why you'll see two names very often if you're looking on a map. Um, but like 29 is, is only, you know, that's, there's 19 other people, uh, mostly civilians, right, uh, who were killed. And 2 million people are now living without power, without water, um, and, and without these basic services, which in turn will result in more death, right? Uh, more people will die because they don't have access to those things which are life-sustaining, right? Old people, young people, sick people. Uh, those things are, are the very basics of sustaining human life. And so without them, things are going to get a lot harder. And I want to talk a little bit about like where these drone strikes happened, because uh, largely, aside from the, the one on the SAH, they weren't at like large groups of people or buildings. Um, instead, they were like deliberately targeting infrastructure um, so of the ones that i saw and the ones that i read about um they targeted like an electricity substation in one case uh they targeted a lot of water facilities right like like water pumping stations etc uh, that allow people to get water a cooking gas plant um, which it's pretty obvious what that does right it allows people to get bottles of gas to cook their food um and uh a lot of oil infrastructure so i saw a, a few of those um they're called like uh donkeys you know the things that go up and yeah. down yeah. yeah am i using the right word or, I, yeah, I don't know the word but the little crane things <laughs> yeah 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 the uh like the the things you can see if you drive through bakersfield i'm sure there's a name Let's see. yeah are they oil derricks yeah uh, someone someone google the name of the the nodding dog that a pump jack is that no no yeah yeah <laughs> No, wait, that's, what, that's the first thing that came up. <laughs> Sounds like, like mm -hmm. a dude who goes to the gym a lot. Yeah, bro, I'm pump jacked. I mean, it does. It is called the uh, an oil donkey as well. So you weren't okay. wrong. Yeah, nodding donkey pumps. Yeah, that's what I thought they were nodding donkeys. Okay, yeah, okay. that's 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 a phrase we're going with. Um, so you could see a lot of these that were like knocked over on their side, right? That had been drone struck, um, and then you could see others that were just knocked out because the power to them had been knocked out. So. Obviously, that's not only a major revenue source, but also like that is how people in the region get fuel, right? Mm -hmm. So like it, it's going to be harder for them to get uh, diesel. It's going to be harder for them to drive around. People already um, don't drive around a lot because a lot of the drone strikes on uh, people in the Yepige Yepige, so the, the, the people's defense forces and women's defense forces. Lots of drone strikes have happened when those people are driving their cars 
uh, when they get in a car. So uh, it, it can be quite hairy driving. Um, and and it's, uh, like, a lot of people were driving too, like I drove around. Uh, but that's just one of the areas of, of risk for people, right? Of the people killed, 35 were Asaish, 11 were civilians, and two were SCF. So most of these were either internal security or civilians. And I think Robert, you were, Robert and I spoke while, while I was there. And Robert made a good point about how this like enables these uh, non-state armed groups, like either ISIS or yeah. um, like HTS. Yeah, that was my my main concern for you while you were there was not that you would get hit in an airstrike, um, but it was that uh, because of the damage done to the security forces as a result of the the Turkish airstrikes, you would uh, it would it would. There's there's always been ISIS cells there, right? They're, yes. they're, they're, they've never gotten rid of all of them. And periods where the AANES self-administration is under attack are the periods in which it's most dangerous because it provides there's less security forces, you know, watching mm-hmm. everything. People in general are are out less, which provides cover for, for some of these groups that may want to do like a kidnapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's not a place where there are a lot of, uh, I guess, folks who look like me. Um so that that was a concern for us, and like it's a concern for these people too, right? They they still sure. do car bombs in Derizor, uh, not you know these things still kill civilians. Yeah, they they roll up uh, ISIS people on on a probably weekly basis. Um, people are interested in getting more information both about the drone strikes and about what they call sleeper cells. The Rojava Information Center, uh, very nice people. Uh, they have a good website. Uh, it's rojavainformationcenter.org. They produce monthly reports uh, on both things. So that will give more information on those things. Now will be a good time to pivot to adverts, but <laughs> I, I, I've got fuck all that is... Do you, uh, do you know who else provides great services? I don't think we can I don't reasonably make that claim. The products and services that support this podcast. Mm-hmm. Here they are. We're back. And we are discussing drone strikes on northeast Syria. I guess not just from northeast Syria. Like these also happen up around uh, Suleimani. Suleimani, if you're looking on the map, um, depends again on the language, right? Those have happened again against uh, KCK, which is like the Kurdistan Communities Council. So that would be the, I guess the, um, the that if you look at like. Syria, Iran, Turkey, and Iraq as different countries, all of which uh, have some administrative control over the nation of Kurdish people, right? Kurdish people live in all four countries, and they live in other countries too, of course. Um, Then the movements in each of those countries are subsidiary to the KCK. Um, And so uh, some of those KCK folks are up in Soleimani, so there will be drone strikes there. And that's that's far inside Iraqi Kurdistan, right? You're you're a long way from the border there, and that's that's what these drone strikes. I guess the drone strikes are, allow Turkish intelligence and the Turkish military to target people much much further inside with with very little consequence or risk on their end, right? These drones are largely not being targeted because certainly in AANES, the Autonomous Administration in Northeast Syria, they don't have the means to target them, right? The United States hasn't supplied them with the weapons that they would need to shoot down those drones, which I think brings me on to the role of the US in this. Um, And I guess more broadly, uh, the role of the coalition, 
uh, in this case, coalition is, is a coalition to defeat ISIS, right? It's made up of dozens of countries, the UK, the US, Germany, uh, lots of other uh, Western, I guess, countries broadly, uh, and, and countries in, in that part of the world too. Like I think Iraq is part of it. Um, certainly like Iraqi Kurdistan has done their own operations against ISIS sleeper cells, um, Peshmerga. And like everywhere you go, right, you'll go through Peshmerga checkpoints. Like I was going through an area where they had arrested uh, an ISIS member the day before. So like it's, they'll be getting you out of the car, you know, going through your bags, looking through your stuff, right? Um, and so the, that's all part of the same operation. But the US has a base in a place called Al-Hasaka, which again, you can look up on the map, right? It's a little west, I'm trying to line up my compass here, a little west of Kamishlo, um, which is the capital of the region. And the US, pretty much US troops don't do a great amount of leaving that base, it's fair to say. Uh, they'll, they'll come out in helicopters. They, they were going out like sort of supporting uh, S SDF um, patrols in the Alhasca region, but they were supporting them from the air, right? They, they generally aren't going out and about like uh, with people on the ground talking to people unless it's a specific mission, which they do sometimes. Um, you can, if people are interested in like the U.S. presence, it's it's called Operation Inherent Resolve, and they have a Twitter account where they'll sometimes post themselves doing things. Uh, but what they don't do is protect that. Like, and so the U.S. and the Autonomous Administration are allies in this fight against ISIS, right? But they are only allies in this fight against ISIS. The U.S. is not supporting them in defending themselves from drone strikes or like ensuring that. The civilian population is protected from those attacks. So the US has the capacity to shoot down these drones, uh, and they prove that by shooting one down. Uh, last week or the week before, I'm a li little bit jet-lagged, so I'm a bit bungled on time, but um, I think it was last week, the US shot down a Turkish drone. So that that'd came... be about two weeks ago for when this is airing. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, good point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, two weeks ago, the United States shot down, uh, an F-16 shot down a Turkish drone. Uh so specifically, it was a drone called an Akinji, uh, which is a newer variant of the Bayraktar drone. Uh, we've spoken about these drones before, right? They're the drones that people... Like, I know you can go on Etsy and buy a stuffy version of these drones, which... Right. That's con that's concerning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's really dystopian and crazy. I don't like it. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I do not like it either. I think it... it illustrates the way the war in ukraine has become like a football match for some people yeah yes uh, or, or like a film where like i just want to reinforce that like it's turned into like fandom yeah yeah yes, yes. yeah i think that's an excellent uh way of putting it garrison like it it's not cool when anyone gets fucking drone struck it, it's not cool when uh like everyone in an area spends every night worrying if death is going to come from the sky at some point right like the effect of these drone strikes isn't just on the people killed or the people in, injured or even the infrastructure. The effect is on every single person uh, worrying what's going to happen tonight, right? Like, and I, I can speak to a tiny part of that experience, right? Nothing compared to what people living there have gone through at all. But it's a concern every time it gets dark, you know? Well, it, it's tonight the night, especially for the rural folks who might be living in a rural area but near to a substation or near to one of those uh, nodding donkeys or other infrastructure which has been targeted or like near a cooking gas plant, right? Those things I can imagine explode with quite some force. Uh, what They can't leave, right? They can't just up and, and not live near any infrastructure. Infrastructure is what allows the place to be survivable for civilians. So they just have to live 
with this constant fear. Um, and it's very odd to see that and then simultaneously see this this sort of I don't know, deification of drone strikes that are happening in Ukraine and like this, you know, people with dog dressed as Napoleon Twitter avatars uh, yeah. like cheering someone's kid dying. Yeah, I mean, throughout all of the kind of new conflicts we've had the past five years, like the, and, and especially the past like two, three years, like the idea of like politics as fandom has yeah. produced some of the like most like inhumane, gross uh, aspects of how people have been like consuming social media and just the sheer, it's like people forget that this is like thousands of people's actual like human lives that they're like yes. memeing about. And it's, it just, it just becomes just, it, it, they talk about it in the same way they talk about like a Marvel movie or yeah. like a Star Wars yeah. movie. Like it's, 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 yeah. yeah, or sports. Like it's, it, 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 it's like this weird, like gamified, it, it, it allows you to, to approach these things from a, just a, from a very separate perspective when you're, when you're viewing it from like this fandom angle I think all but politics is fandom in general i think has gotten a whole lot worse since the trump era you yes. had you know like that's where we had like resistance libs that were mm -hmm. uh like uh, copying off some of the stuff from the new star yeah. wars trilogy which is kind of the inspiration for a lot of their stuff we got nazis doing a whole bunch of politics as fandom as well um it just create like it's 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 like this team sports um like fandom thing that is just pervade it's 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 it seeped into like almost every single aspect of like not just politics but now like conflict and like geopolitics well, yeah. it's like yeah. whoever has the best branding is the one that's has the the best chance yeah and it's yeah. i don't know it's 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 disturbing to watch i i, I don't know how to like counter counter it because yeah. it feels like the more you engage the further sucked into the abyss you become um but it also doesn't feel good to just like ignore it as well because it's just it's like it feels like this kind of endless trap that is just a part of existing in this weird postmodern internet world. Yeah, I don't know. I think like one would hope that the internet in some ways could help us see that like at the end of every drone strike is a little fucking child most of the yeah. time or like like I spent some time last week with a family who almost exactly one year ago lost their 15 year old son in a drone strike and like it that like i understand people die in these things like on an intellectual level and even on a personal level like having spent time in these places you know for a decent amount of my adult life but yeah fuck me it's just like it destroyed you like seeing a mum bury her son cry for her little boy it, it's fucking heartbreaking and like i got to live that for one morning and those people live that every single day um and every yeah. time like and i don't I don't know. It makes me want to shout at people when uh, when I see this. I don't actually think it's. I, I don't mean to be a doomer here. I don't think it's a solvable problem. Yeah. Um. This is we we are talking about it within the language of fandom because that is mm -hmm. kind of the defining uh, public social relationship of our time. Yeah. But yeah. like this is always what people have done to war. Sure. One sure. way or the other. Right. Yeah. Um. It's faster now and 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 more commercial right like one thing for whatever reason i think just because we're acculturated to it hearing people talk about you know doing what they do in times of war because of patriotism because of nationalism because of belief in the founding principles of their country um seems a little bit less 
course than like doing it because you fell in with a bunch of memers who use little dog avatars and shit. But like, yeah. I don't know. It's not it's not like less logical than than yeah. being ride or die because like you happen yeah. to be born under, you know, so and so the king. Yeah, I fair. Think- yeah, yeah. And like that dehumanization. I think the difference like to me is like so, like, Robert and I have both experienced this, right? To, to, in order to kill somebody, you have to dehumanize them. To kill people en masse, you have to do that en masse, right? If you're fighting a war, it doesn't behoove you, you to You think make of, it sound like we're killing people, James. <laughs> well, that's the thing that we do on the podcast, Robert. It's, yeah, we it's, kill people in, in mass, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. You're yeah, going to have to... Schooler zone is where we talk about the killings. Uh, yeah. if, if people want to yeah. subscribe, that's what we do yeah. instead of adverts, is we list the people we've killed. Yeah, James, as the as the quote on your Blue Sky account says, one death is a tragedy, one million is a statistic. James <laughs> that's, Stout. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's just, uh, every, every, Christ, guys. every day I strive to uh, get my number up, you know? Uh, but, but so far I've let everyone down. That's not true. Uh, and to my knowledge, none of us have killed anyone. But I, To your knowledge. To my knowledge, yeah. Uh, Shireen's probably got some bodies in the uh, in the closet, you know. Jesus Christ, guys. <laughs> it's just stacking them. Yeah. So what I wanted to say is that, like, when, yeah, like, if, you, if you're in the military, you probably know this, right? Like, like this sort of blood makes a grass grow shit. Fine, whatever. Like, that's how wars work. War is undesirable. It's horrible. You have to be horrible. You have to, you have to dehumanize people to kill them. You don't have to fucking do that if you're on Twitter.com. But, like... People, you know, people with the silly dog avatars chiefly, but other people too, have have begun to see themselves as like participants in conflict in a way that they maybe didn't. Uh, maybe they did, and I just wasn't around in the second world. Yeah, War, you know? no, but that's, like, I think I think that does tie into part of how the fandom thing yeah. works because a part of participating in fandom is is being in these kind of very very alienating online spaces because any type of like engagement on the internet in this way is is fueled through the process of alienation but when that kind of starts applying to to politics you feel like either the act of consuming or or like you know joining in on conversation is itself like a form of activism uh by just like just through like consuming or sharing content you feel like you're actually participating in the thing itself um yeah and i think some of it's this almost narcissistic need to not let the world pass you by because it's there there's something deeply uncomfortable about just like watching massive things happen and realizing like there's nothing i can do about this yeah um to feel like you matter and there isn't a lot of the time right like your your take you know the the instant a, a hospital gets attacked in gaza um your your take on that is 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 not particularly helpful or necessary yeah um unless you're I don't know, um, uh, Joe Biden, right? Um, but, yeah. uh, which is not, I don't think his take was helpful, but right, it was like, it had an impact because he's the president. But like most of us, yeah. we're just kind of part of the churn. And there's almost, there's like a degree of emotional need to it, especially when you see this horrible footage of bodies piled high, right? You feel like I'm a bad person if I don't do something. And the only thing I can do is tweet. Um, uh, or whatever yeah. your social well, media like, du jour is. I feel like I just just to play devil's advocate for a hot yeah. sec. I think it's a little different when there's so much 
conflicting information, especially, I mean, like the Gaza thing is a great example because uh, the electricity's out. They don't want them to, yeah. to share anything. So I think when it comes to stuff, something like that, it's more about like spreading awareness versus like having a take, in my opinion. It's more just like, hey, the news might say this, but this is from the actual person on the ground telling you what's happening. So I think there's a little bit of uh, nuance because I also think the only reason oh, that... Yeah. Like, like just for Palestine, for example, just, just we don't have to go into it too much. But a huge reason why there is so much more support for the Palestinian movement is because of social media. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. People see people in Gaza as people now, not as statistics or uh, just through the lens of Hamas or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it depends. I think it depends on how you do it. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, it is it is accurate to say that to a significant extent the ultimate outcome of these conflicts are determined in large part due to public sympathy, right? Like that's going to be probably true of however things ultimately shake out in Gaza. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's certainly been true of the conflict in Ukraine, right? Like the degree to which weapons keep flowing to that country is going to be heavily based on the degree to which um, sympathy for that cause remains among U.S. taxpayers and taxpayers in other countries that are sending them those weapons. That's going to have an impact on the presidential election, maybe. Um, I mean, that is the other thing, right? That like uh, everyone who is engaging with this stuff via social media, um, there's a tendency to get caught up in a bubble in terms of just thinking about how much this is on the mind of like American voters. Maybe it'll be different this election, but generally... Like, again, my, my feelings on this are kind of muddled, but like very, very often, no matter how big a deal a story is, uh, you know, online and stuff, American voters rarely vote based on foreign policy concerns. Yeah, it tends to be elections. I want to say... Uh, I'm not saying that's what matters morally. No, I'm just talking no, no. about yeah, like... You're totally correct. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, and especially in terms of your ability to influence something. It doesn't matter how much yeah. you if other people don't at an election time. I want to maybe finish up. Uh, I have just knocked over a bottle of Osipropyl alcohols. So my office is rapidly becoming uh, <laughs> the dentist. You just like gassed own. yourself. <laughs> yourself. Yeah. That's why I went to turn on the fan and open the door. Um, uh, good times. So uh, I, maybe I want to finish up before I evacuate by saying <laughs> that there is something you can do and like it's to give your time and money. I know that doesn't feel as good as like, you know, trying to do amateur OSINT on uh, yeah. Reddit, but. It, it, you can help, actually, like, and you can make a meaningful difference with a few bucks. And I know I sound like an NPR advert now, but like uh, the Rojava Information Center has some good resources and like they, they have, uh, I'm not going to read them out because it's quite complicated. Like it's, a, it's bank transfer information. But if you feel helpless, you are not like you can do a lot with a little. You can raise money. You can help to organize donations, right? That like this these things make a difference. If, if someone who doesn't have water now gets a pallet of bottled water, that makes a difference. If someone gets a, a heater for their home, that makes a difference. If Even if it's someone whose kid has died, right? Like making their life a little less painful in a physical sense, right? Like helping them be warm at night, that does make a difference and you can do that. Uh, and if, if you want to make a difference, I would really encourage you to do whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be here, right? It's happened like there's a uh, like there's an ethnic cleansing happening in Azerbaijan. There is an ethnic cleansing happening in Gaza, uh, right? Like these are places where like you can show meaningful solidarity and support with 
a little bit of a donation or a fundraiser. It's happening at our fucking border, right? Like someone died at our border since our last recording. Someone else got run over uh, by some chud in a truck. Um, but like you can make a difference in a meaningful way with actions. Uh, and it's really easy to get sucked into like just posting into the void and feeling helpless. But like there are helpful things you can do. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, and you don't have to just, you don't have to be like rich or have a lot of disposable income to do this. There's a lot of like traditionally um, anarchist communities have put on benefit shows to run to fundraise from an entire community. Um, yeah. So that's not just you trying to, you know, you know, put like your few pennies aside. Uh, there is there's ways there, there's ways to do this that just involve you actually like getting involved with your like local culture. Um, and mm -hmm. a part of that is like it's not politics is fandom. It is meta politics. It's where you actually put your politics into your into your actual everyday life. And it yes. influences the friends you have, the communities you have. Um, so whether that's, you know, a, a whole bunch of trans musicians doing a benefit show to to get donations to send over to Rojava or send over to Gaza or, you know, there's a, a, a lot of other sorts of things th th that that is a way of actually having part of your politics be not just like consumption have not. It's, it's, it's not just like Twitter accounts with flags in your avatar. Uh, it's actually like living your life in a way that matches yeah. the things that you believe. And I think. That that like so having spoken to people in Rojava in the Yepige and the Yepige and these other organizations, like one of the things that makes them distinct from other militaries is that they are building the world they want to see while they're fighting against the thing that's killing it, right? Like that's destroying yeah. it. Uh, like a lot of times we'll see leftist militaries not exactly uh, doing the equality that leftism is about. One hopes so. Like you can participate in that as Garrison said, right, by doing the mutual aid, by doing the benefit show, by doing the fundraiser, like you are making a world in which this shit will happen less when you do things to stop it happening or to ease the pain of it happening now. So, uh, and you're building communities, right? And strong communities are more resilient to this shit. Uh, yeah. And like it, things are getting pretty bleak and we're only going to get through them by helping each other. Uh, and so building a network that continue, like, if I think about how much better the mutual aid response has been this time to what's happened at the border compared to what it was in May, that's because people built networks that didn't go away. And it, it was good in May in part because we built networks that, that help to make being unhoused in San Diego feel, be survivable, right? And like those networks are resilient and they're, uh, they're flexible, but they're, and it, they help us like mentally process all the horrible shit and also physically help people. So. Yeah, you, you have that within your means too, right? You have a signal on your telephone, like you, you can organize things. Uh, you don't have to feel helpless. But I feel dizzy uh, due to the isopropyl <laughs> alcohol that I have spilled. So maybe that's a so, wonderful time to end the uh, podcast. All right, everyone. James is going to hallucinate uh, in his office. And uh, yeah. you, I hope, mm -hmm. are going to hallucinate wherever you happen to be right now. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. Hallucinate yeah. a better world. Yeah. Hallucinate a better oh, world. It might be the only way to live through one. What a, what yeah. a wonderful podcast to Garrison Davis is, everyone. Hi, it's me, James. Uh, you, you thought I died, uh, but I have not. I survived the isopropyl alcohol fumes. Uh, I wouldn't advise doing that to yourself. Very unpleasant. But I'm back just to update you. We recorded that last week, um, and I am recording this the day before this goes out. So I'm recording this on the afternoon of Monday, the 23rd of October. I just wanted to update everyone, as Robert mentioned in the show, 
the 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 weakening of the the Asaish, right, and the the fact that people are not able to be out and about because of these drone strikes, combined with the events in Israel and Palestine in the last couple of weeks, have resulted in a significant uptick in violence in the area. So um, I just wanted to update you on that, especially as I've seen a decent amount of misinformation, which will be shocking to many of you on Twitter.com. So there have been a series of rocket and UAV, UAV uh, unmanned aerial vehicle right drones, uh, drone attacks on U.S. bases across the north of Iraq and across uh, Syria. So some of those happened at Al-Tant, which is further south. Some of them happened at Al-Hasaka. Uh, some of them also happened at oil pipelines. And I would be very wary of, of people posting pictures of big fires and claiming that there are attacks at the U.S. bases. Uh, every time I've seen that, it's actually been an attack at an oil pipeline. And either the person doesn't know that that's not a U.S. base or or they are willfully being misleading to try and get more clicks. People get paid on Twitter for engagement now. So um, I'm, quite, I'm quite cynical about people's reasons for doing that. But there definitely have been attacks, but they have not resulted in much loss of life. One contractor, I believe, did lose their lives uh, due to a cardiac incident that happened when they were sheltering from a what turned out to be a false alarm of a drone attack. Um, but no one has been directly killed by those drone munitions. There have been... A number of people killed in increasing conflict in the area. Uh, both one person was killed in, in Kamishlo, uh, very, very close to where I stayed, actually. You can probably see it from my hotel room uh, in, in a car bomb, which is not a normal thing to happen in the middle of that city, a, a car bomb going off. So that's obviously caused for concern for some people. Um, in Deir Ezzur, SDF and coalition Forces have conducted a number of operations against ISIS sleeper cells who are still there, um, arrested, detained a number of suspected ISIS members. Uh, they've also been fighting against Iranian-backed militias across the Euphrates. Uh, we've also seen uh, fighting between the Peshmerga, so that those are the military forces of the uh, Kurdistan regional government in that area of Iraq, and the Iraqi army uh, around the Makmur refugee camp, which is a refugee camp for Kurdish people uh, who had fled from Turkey. And of course, we've seen a lot of uh, threats, a lot of even fighting inside Iran, uh, but it, it's generally been Iranian-backed militias attacking US bases so far across that whole area. Um, so I just wanted to update you on those things. Obviously, we'll keep updating you on them and also to just suggest once again that people verify the sources of information because I have seen, especially about this area where I think Literacy is very low among the general US population. Some outrageous claims being made by people who either don't know what they're talking about or are willfully misleading people. So I wanted to counsel people to be uh, concerned about that. We don't have exact, I don't have exact numbers of the numbers of drone attacks. I'm looking at a Pentagon press conference that happened 39 minutes ago and then they're not giving them out there. Uh, so I have asked them for comment on a couple of things that didn't email me back. Very sad, ghosting me. But yeah, that, that's the latest information on that. I wanted to make sure that we have the latest update for you. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here. I am Robert Evans, and this is a podcast about things falling apart. Uh, Sometimes it's about how to make things not fall apart, uh, and other times it's more about enduring it. Today is more on the endurance side of things. And we're talking about a subject that we get a lot of requests about here. We've discussed this a year or so ago with one of our guests, the great Carl Casarda. We're talking about like security culture and particularly the aspect of security culture that involves digital devices and how to communicate with your friends, affinity groups, uh, whomever via your phone, essentially, or your computer. This is a a thing where there's a a huge amount of disinformation as to like which apps are safe. What does it actually mean to say that an app is encrypted? Um, How far does encryption get you? What sort of like cultural things come alongside 
uh, the actual like physical reality of, of the security of the device in order to kind of make a, a comprehensive security profile. We're going to be talking about all that today and hopefully giving you some good advice on what you can trust because I am the furthest thing in the world from a technical expert. Um, we have two actual experts with us today. Carolyn Sanders and Cooper Quinton uh, have both recently published a paper uh, alongside several other authors, uh, Layla Wagner, Tim Bernard, Ami Mehta, uh, and Justin Hendricks. Um, called What is Secure? An Analysis of Popular Messaging Apps. And it's it's basically going over what is the actual level of, of security with a number of like things like Telegram, you know, Telegram's private messaging system, uh, Facebook Messenger, Apple Message, uh, or iMessage, I guess it's called, um, and obviously Signal. And, and kind of as a spoiler, Signal is your best bet, but that also isn't where you should end, right? I think we want to also talk about kind of like why and, and to what extent that's the case. But anyway, I'm going to turn things over to Carolyn and Cooper now, uh, because I have talked enough about this. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hey, Robert. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, big fan of the podcast. So always lovely. Really lovely to be here. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's really lovely to to have you both. Again, listeners, if you want to take a look at this, their paper, if you just Google what is secure and analysis of popular messaging apps, you'll find the Tech Policy Press has a, a summary of it that's pretty quick. The full paper is 86 pages or so. I also recommend reading that. But if you wanted to give this, a, uh, you know, the summary a skim before you continue, that might help. But uh, I kind of wanted to start by asking you guys, what is it that makes Signal a good option? For people, right? Because I think most folks, you describe it as sort of security folklore, right? This the stuff that you hear about security from your friends, and if you're not a technical person, you kind of just like trust what the folks around you are saying. And that was sort of how I got into Signal, right? I'm not a a technical person, but people I knew and trusted who were were like, "This is your best option." Yeah, thank you so much. That's such a good question, and I think Cooper and I probably have similar, but also like very different answers to it. Um, yeah. Cooper, I can go first if you mm -hmm. want. One of the things I love about Signal is it's just really easy to use. Um, it's it's end -end encrypted. It's a messaging app. There's not a lot of stuff on it, but you can do a lot with it. So you can do video calls. You can send actually pretty large files like PDFs. Um, you can kind of drag and drop stuff. It's like such a low threshold for use for users um, because it is a messaging app, but it, it does so many different kinds of things. But then... Related to that, it's also actually quite minimal. Um, so the paper, which everyone should read, and we'll probably get into this later, different apps like Telegram or uh, Facebook's Messenger app, for example, have um, have this thing we've been calling like feature bloat. They are messaging services that actually feel a bit more like social networks. If you look at the amount of stuff that's on there, and by stuff, mm -hmm. I don't just mean like stickers. I mean, um, if you look at, there's all these sort of, specific and strange settings you can use to have all different kinds of messages um, and all different kinds of privacy settings. And while privacy settings are really, really great, um, because Telegram and, mm -hmm. and Facebook Messenger are not encrypted by default, actually some of those settings can make you feel more secure when you're not. So kind of the beauty of Signal is that out of the box, it's incredibly secure. Uh, it's unencrypted. They're not holding any data about you. I believe the only only data they hold is like when you've like when a, a phone number or a profile has downloaded Signal, like when you've when you've signed up. Um, but again, it's it's incredibly easy to use. Um, and another thing 
is, you know, if this was a few years ago, we've been looking at wire, for example, one of the nice things about signal, and this might be controversial to some designers, is that it does follow modern design patterns and standards. So if you're using like an iOS or Android version, like there are buttons and places where you expect them to be. Signal is not perfectly designed, but it is Mm -hmm. quite usable. Um, So for me, that's kind of what I think makes it makes it really wonderful. Yeah, it's definitely... As much as I love it, it, it's my like standard messaging app. I do every now and then run into the thing where like my friends will call me through Signal, which is great if you need a call to be secure, but it's not nearly as good. Like it drops a lot more often than a regular phone call. And I'm like, we're just trying yeah. to meet at the movie theater. It's OK if the NSA knows. Right. right? Like, <laughs> I've, I've definitely had that with friends where I, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, we're just calling to, to, to talk about mm-hmm. like your dog. It's probably fine. Yeah. We... The, the FBI can have this yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Please send, please send, mm-hmm. please send dog pics uh, through yeah. all, all messaging apps. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but on that note, it's uh, writing, writing usable software that is also secure is really hard. Right. And like, as a, like as cryptographer, I'm not a cryptographer, but like as somebody cryptographer adjacent, we got that wrong for a long time. Right. Like before signal, the, you know, there were the, the, the sort of most used encryption methods were probably uh, PGP email, which is a method for encrypting email and off the record chats. And both of those, none of those ever got to the sort of level of, of user base that Signal and, and, and certainly not WhatsApp have. Right. And, and that's largely because they were pretty much unusable. Like, PGP almost entirely unusable, even by cryptography professionals, right? Even by computer security professionals like ourselves. Um, OTR chat, total pain in the butt, right? Like just, just a real nightmare to use. So like signal, there are still some rough edges and we talked about some of those in our paper. Um, But overall, I think that the big, the big innovation they've had is just remembering that what people want to do on a chat app is not encrypt things. What people want to do on a chat at is they want to ch- they want to chat, right? And and the second that 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 the security sort of gets in the way of that, people will stop using it and go find something that's more usable. And it seems like that's been Signal's sort of um, guiding star. And it's and they've you know doing the doing the most secure thing that you can while still being fun and usable to actually just chat on, right? And and I think that that has served them quite well. Yeah, I think there's it's it's so important. One of I think one of the things that that contributes to good overall security is setting yourself up for success, which means setting yourself up for a system that can function well if you're lazy, which is one of the nice things that, you know, with Signal, you don't have to worry about like opting in and out and like selecting a bunch of stuff. It's pretty safe, especially for a normal person's uses right out of the box, which is huge and and kind of in the same line as that is the fact that because signal doesn't store metadata you're not relying upon them being like committed you know anti-state <laughs> actors or whatever like because they don't have access to the thing that for example facebook will hand over to the cops if the cops just like breathe in their direction yeah that's that's exactly right and that's that is that is the other really cool thing about signal you know we as Carolyn said, the only data that Signal gives over in response to uh, a subpoena 
is the time that the phone number signed up for signal account and the last time it connected to the signal server and the reason we know that is because signal publishes transparency reports with the full text and full response of any subpoena that they get um so like we can actually just see in the responses that all they've given over is these two pieces of information because that's all they have and they've done some pretty clever things uh to make that be the case right and that's actually so different than how other companies are, I think, reporting on either subpoenas or any kind of um, weight that law enforcement puts on them. Um, so for our report, I, I don't remember how much it's, it's mentioned in the report, actually, but we did go through and look at um, Apple, Meta, um, and I think Google, like in their own transparency reports to try to get a sense of how, how that would stack up in comparison to signals. Um, I think in some cases it's saying like, they received um, some kind of like notification, but like no, um, nothing really clear or specific on like what what they received from law enforcement or government, but rather just that they received one. And so that's also the really great thing about Signal is you are getting all of this information that you're not getting from other companies or platforms. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to kind of uh in, in this same subject, and going back to we 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 I kind of opened this by introducing the concept that y'all introduced me to. I guess I was aware of this, but not the terminology security folklore. And I wanted to chat a little bit about kind of the most recent example of this. Something a lot of folks have probably been wondering about since we started talking about Signal, which is that roughly a week before y'all and I sat sat down to to talk about this, um, a kind of viral info meme started coming through that was like. Signal has a zero day exploit, uh, which is basically a hole that a hacker found in a in an app or program um, that is uh, that can expose you. You have to turn off um, link previews, right? Which is that when you when someone sends you like a link to an article in Signal, you get a little preview, not not dissimilar Good to how you link used previews. to get. And I think to be fair just based on my very limited knowledge, that is when I think about like what are potential holes in Signal, I don't think it's unreasonable to be concerned about that specific feature. Um, but that warning was not what it kind of seemed to be, basically, or not as accurate as I think a lot of people took it as being. I don't know. I'll, let, I'll, t- I'll turn it over to you guys. I think that's the next thing I want to talk about. I'll turn it over to Cooper, who had, mm-hmm. I yeah. think you had a... a, a you have a, bit, a lot of feels about that. But I have so many feelings about this. Mm-hmm. I, I was working on this all weekend so this yeah so this copy pasta I'm, I'm calling this like the signal copy pasta yeah um which is a term from a, you know 4chan and uh, other horrible internet places but it, it, i feel it really like the describes... cool zone media audience is probably internet enough know yeah i'm gonna guess is. a good half of the people listening at least got that message yeah 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 and it's it's like first of all this is not if you if you had a zero day in signal, which is a which is an exploit for signal that has been unpatched, mm-hmm. that has not been patched by the vendor, so you can actively exploit it. There are no people in the world who would choose to quietly leak this over, you know, over vague signal texts. There are two types of, of people. One, uh, you know, people like us that would bring this to signal immediately and get them to patch it to protect the you know millions of high risk users that use signal or two, the type of people that would go sell this exploit to some horrible company that would use it, you know, sell it to, to Saudi Arabia or something and use it to kill activists. Right. Like there is, and there's no in between, there's nobody that is going to 
quietly leak this for you know just for fun with vague details right so yeah. so this this message set up red flags immediately and like it it's because i really do not like link previews and in our paper we discussed some of the issues that we have with link previews um you know we think that they can they can leak some information about your chats to the uh owner of the website right we think it's a kind of a large attack service that's not super necessary would you mind explaining to actually the audience too, like a little bit about what what we found um, when looking at link previews? Yeah. So the way that link previews work is when you the way that they work on Signal um, and on WhatsApp is that when you send a link to somebody, the Signal app or, or WhatsApp goes and like fetches the web page that that you know for that link right it goes and downloads you know downloads the content of that link and gets a there are some there's some special html tags that describe you know sort of what the page is about what the title of the page is and like an image for the page and it gets those tags and it puts them all together in this little package and then sends that all as part of the signal message so when you put a link in signal your phone actually goes out and gets that web page and it gets that web page with a um what's called a user agent which is like a, a a piece of text that's attached to the request that uniquely that that identifies it as being a request from signal and from like from signal and from your ip address right so when you put a link in the owner of that website whoever has the logs for that website can know that somebody at your IP address is using signal and sending this link over signal. What we're, what our concern is, is that if that link is unique, um, then anybody else who visits that link can be inferred to be somebody that you are talking with over signal. Right. And so like, this can be, this, this can be a good, uh, an, an interesting, a source of intelligence for, uh website owners especially yeah. for big websites that can easily generate unique links with like tracking parameters at the end of them right like when you share a uh uh, uh instagram post and then like at the end it's like question mark ig shid equals you know a long string of numbers and letters right or a, a twitter post where you know t equals a long string of letters and numbers right that makes a unique link and then anybody who visits that same link can be determined to be somebody that you were speaking with over signal so and also that, whatsapp and also whatsapp um and so so for that reason we 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 think that signal and whatsapp should turn link previews off by def by default um, because we think that that's an unnecessary information leak signal and whatsapp's pushback on that is that link previews are a core feature that people demand um and if they if they were to turn off link previews by default they're worried that people would leave the platform for less secure platforms like telegram so yeah i mean i don't want to tell them their business because i'm sure yeah. they have data on this but i've i've i've, I've never thought about uh link previews as being a thing that i needed <laughs> it's like yeah, I think it's I think it's one of those things. And, you know, we haven't necessarily done like extensive um, general design research in this. Right. Like we haven't surveyed like 3000 people in the U.S. Like we haven't done like a Pew research survey across countries and be like, what are your thoughts on link previews? Um, but I would probably argue because it is it is 
included in so much of modern messaging apps that we now assume it's like a core feature. One thing I will give Signal that I think is amazing that other apps don't do, and this is true of WhatsApp, is pretty much every feature except for encry- encryption, you can there's something you can toggle or turn off, right? So like yeah. link preview already was ab- available for people to turn off on Signal. Um, WhatsApp does not allow that and seems like they're making no moves to allow that feature to be optional to to turn on or off. Um, But that is, I will say one of the things that's really lovely about signal that is so different from modern design and modern like big tech platforms and just platforms in general is that those, a lot of features are optional. Whereas, you know, WhatsApp and Meta's sort of stance on design is that a lot of things are not optional, that those are things users would want. Why would we make foundational elements like link previews, optional and you're just like sorry i'm like gesturing wildly but like you know it's like well you you don't know what people want and i mean what's the harm in turning off some of some of these things right you know like maybe maybe people don't want to receive gifts i don't know maybe they don't want to receive stickers why don't you like (laughs) let them have that option what's the harm that could happen yeah 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 i I couldn't agree more yeah Two things I want to say on that. One is one is that, uh, and first we should acknowledge that this. It turns out that there was no zero day. There was no vulnerability. Yeah, like, this was absolutely just something that that spread virally out of nowhere. I'd be really right. interested to find out what the origin of this copy pasta yeah. was, but I haven't uh, I haven't I'm, been able to. But it's I'm curious about that as as well because I was in another group thread that was like, we really need outside auditors to look at these, and I was like, we have a whole report that we wrote. That did look at this. Speaking <laughs> of outside auditors, I got to pause you guys just a second because it is time for an ad break. Uh, so please spend your money uh, and then come back to learn more. Ah, and we're back. Okay. Sorry about that, Cooper. Carolyn, uh, you, you may continue um, as you were. The, the other thing I was I was going to say, the, the idea that anybody would leave WhatsApp because they stopped having link previews mm-hmm. is completely preposterous to me. Like it's WhatsApp, clownish. WhatsApp it's fucking clownish has over 2 billion users. They are the, you know, in a position to set the standard for what people expect from a messaging app. And so like they could do things like, turn on disappearing messages by default and change that culture. They could do things like turn off link previews by default and change that culture. Like they could do these things and, you know, they would, you know, they would not lose uh, uh, enough users to even notice or care about. Right. They are the only people in the position in the world, in the position to decide what the culture should be. And this is what they've decided the culture should be. Totally. I hate to break it to you, but yeah, if WhatsApp just got rid of link previews, I'm just throwing my whole phone into the garbage yeah. garbage can, getting rid of yeah. it, just tossing Going it out back the window. to a landline. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to yeet it into a river. Be like, I don't need this anymore. Actually, I'm going back to carrier pigeon. Yeah. That's how far back I'm going to go. I mean, that that does kind of lead into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is sort of the other uh, wing from security folklore, which is security uh, nihilism. And... Yeah, this is kind of, you introduce this when talking about sort of 
if you do try to engage somewhat with the technology or if you wind up just kind of in the position I think most lay people are where, you know, maybe you have some friends who know more or maybe you have some friends who think they know more and you get all these conflicting things about like, this is safe. No, it's not. You can't trust Signal. The feds could be running Signal, all this kind of stuff. Um, And to be fair, the feds have run security based services before. It's not like I don't believe that's happening with Signal, but it's not like I understand where paranoia like that can can enter into people's uh, calculus, especially especially if you're not um, technically knowledgeable. Um, And that can lead to this sort of state of security nihilism where you're just like, you can't communicate at all online. There's no way to do it securely. Um, And obviously there's no perfect, right? You never have it. But you don't have 100% with like talking in person to somebody, right? There are individuals in prison right now who, you know, somebody they loved and trusted ratted on them. There's no no 100% in this world. But- that doesn't mean nihilism is the right response to like trying to figure out how to set up your communication standards with people, right? Totally. I mean, I think the approach we take in, because um, throughout this report, we were also teaching workshops to reproductive justice activists um, across the U.S. and states where abortion is banned. Um, I'm from Louisiana. I live half the year there. You know, abortion is banned there. Um, and we were also working with journalists in India. So a big, big thing for us was also teaching threat modeling and different kinds of what Matt Mitchell, um, a security trainer and expert calls digital hygiene. And so a lot of this was recognizing that there was certain practices we were picking up on, particularly with folks we were working with. So like a lot of the reproductive justice activists we were working with um, are new to security. They're new to technology. They don't have a background in tech and generally you know, the American South, the American Deep South is super overlooked in terms of tech policy, in terms of just, I think, a general focus when um, people are talking about tech or tech literacy or tech activism. And that is like leaving really massive gaps in knowledge for people. Um, And so, you know, when we were working on this security folklore and security nihilism, were both actually very almost like a, I don't say like a pendulum, but they were very connected. And so some of that was people hearing things like, oh, I should put my phone in a microwave when I'm having a very sensitive conversation, right? And so that's where some of that security folklore is coming in. It is something that is technically safe, but it's like not the thing you necessarily like totally need to do in that moment. And with security nihilism, what it kind of came down to, and this is stuff we've seen with other groups um, and in other circumstances, a great example are, are, you know, Palestinian activists and journalists, let's say, who are, you know, facing facing the threat of all different kinds of governmental censorship and surveillance of sort of saying, like, when there's this large threat sort of hanging on us and there's also physical surveillance. And this is true for a lot of journalists in other countries like India as well, for example, um, you know, like should everything go through signal or does it really matter? Like, does it really matter? And this is also something, again, we saw with some, some reproductive justice activists as well, where it's like, if everything is being monitored, what's safe? Like, can I send stuff? Like, can I even use Google? And part of this was, you know, by teaching um, privacy and security workshops, by teaching things like threat modeling, which is a framework for just assessing what are, what are threats like what are what are all the potential threats you could face and kind of mapping them from like the most minor to like the most major and what you can do about that. That's a way to try to combat security nihilism. But I think an approach Cooper and I are also really fond of is thinking of this like safer sex. There's yeah. all different kinds of things you can do that are mitigations that are actually incredibly helpful. And we can't look at it as a binary of safe 
or not safe. It's actually like much more of a gradient. Um, but you know, the folklore and the nihilism, I think come from a very similar place, which is we're asking people like society is kind of asking or demanding that people be experts in something that's really hard. I am like a fairly technical person. And even there are some things that I find hard to sort of wrap my head around. And I've been working in privacy and security for like quite a while. Um, and I think, you know, it's also really hard when you think about these apps as like a brand new person. Um, so like one of the things that popped up a lot in our research is like, why should we trust Signal? And that's actually a great question. Like what about Signal in its interface and its design would cause you to trust it? Like some people were like, it's a nonprofit. That's great. But I, I don't know what that means. I'm like, that's actually a fantastic question. Like, what does that mean? Right? Like what, why should you trust this? You've heard through the grapevine that you should. And I think these are kind of all the things that people are dealing with. Cause if you sort of take a step back and just look at software or any different kind of software generally, why should you trust that it's safe and secure when there have been so many different kinds of leaks or breaches or things breaking? Right. Um, yeah. Like, so these are, I think really, really closely tied, but I think a big thing for us is trying to combat that security nihilism. Like whenever, whenever we can, like there is things you can do. I don't want to say like, no matter how great the threat, but I believe like no matter how great the threat there is stuff, there is stuff you can do. No matter how great the threat is, there's stuff that you can do to make it more difficult and more expensive for that person to attack you. Right. Like yeah. we all lock the doors to our house uh, or, you know, for the most part, um, uh, or, you know, we all, we all do things to, to protect ourselves like that, um, mm -hmm. that aren't foolproof, right? Somebody can always break a window to get into your house, right? Somebody yeah. can find other ways to get into your house, but locking the door makes it so, so that somebody has to do the noisy thing of breaking a window. Right. Uh, it, it, it makes it so that, you know, somebody has to spend more time and effort and more risk of getting caught in getting into your house. Right. And that's and that's like we layer when you layer these protections. Right. The idea, you know, is that you're 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 making it harder. You're making there be more friction. Right. To piercing your security. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And the, the concept of friction you know, this is something I, I've talked about, not that these are exactly the same things, but in the, although there's not, not wildly different when it comes to like how insurgents win insurgencies, right? It's, it's not by carrying out these sort of like great battlefield victories that sweep the enemy from the field. It's, it's by friction, right? Which wears down both the, the culture and the, the kind of readiness of, of the opponent until they, they simply bounce, which is a pretty durable and effective strategy if you can keep it up. It's this matter of like there's no there's no like sweeping sudden like 90 minute three act uh, win here. It's more a matter of the more difficult, the more expensive you make it, the more you hold on to um, and the more all of us hold on to. Right. That's the other benefit is like even if you're not even if you are the most law abiding person in the world like myself. Um, having these security measures in place means that you're kind of contributing to the overall, uh, immune system of, of, a of a kind of community of people who don't want the NSA listening to this shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, the, the, the friction thing is, is also exactly what signal does, right? Like by the, the, the threat model for signal is stopping the NSA or other global adversaries from listening to all communications as they travel over the internet. Right. And that's, 
when you can when you can do that like when you can when you can listen to everybody's conversations as they travel over the internet it's really cheap to spy on anybody right yeah. when you're encrypting that communication uh then the nsa or whatever other global adversary has to go actually hack your phone right uh they have to they have to target you specifically they have to burn resources and and you know burn weapons right zero days to get access to your phone and that's a lot more costly it's a lot more noisy it's a much higher risk of them getting caught so it's introduced a huge friction uh yeah. in that in 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 that uh, uh area and, and, totally, and when go ahead okay no go ahead go ahead I was going to say, and I think your asymmetric, the, the sort of comparison to asymmetric warfare is exactly spot on because none of us are ever going to have the money that, that the NSA or Mossad has. None of us are ever going to have the, the total technical acumen that the NSA or, or Mossad has, right? But like mm -hmm. those, the, you know, so we have to kind of fight a, you know, in terms of corruption, in terms of encryption, a guerrilla war, right? And we have to make things so expensive and so annoying for them that it's not worth it. Yeah. Totally. And just to sort of build on that, one of the things I love about Signal is while they're creating friction for our adversaries, it's actually so frictionless to use as a user. And I think that's one of the things I find just continually impressive about the app. I, I don't want this to turn into like the like we're all himbos for Signal, except we probably are. Mm -hmm. But because like that's one of the things as a researcher, like Cooper and I sometimes have to be like, we're not paid by a signal at all. Like, but this is in fact, like one of the best things you can use. But again, one of the things I think is amazing is that it is so easy to use. Um, and it really is designed for, and I'm using the term usability as a, as a design term. Um, meaning that it is, uh, they're thinking about a common user, including those with like lower digital literacy or those that are have never used any kind of any kind of security tool. And so they're hitting a specific threshold of usability for things to be understandable. And again, that's incredibly hard to do well. And they are they are doing it quite well. Like it's very, I would argue it's very easy and sort of seamless for people to make a jump from WhatsApp or if you're on like Google or Android using like Google Messages, sorry, Google, uh, if you're on Android or an iPhone from like iMessages to Google Messages to Signal. Like it doesn't, it might look slightly different. It might be a lot more blue. It might be a lot more black depending upon how yours is constructed. But for the most part, a lot of the features are kind of where you expect them to be. And it's not, it's not at all difficult to get it up and running, which is not something, again, as Cooper said earlier, we could say about uh, things like PGP. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of move on to talking about other apps and their security or lack of it. And I think we should start probably by talking about Telegram, because that's probably close to top of the list of things people use for secure communications that is not nearly as secure as they think. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to kind of chat with you about like why that is. And I, I specifically, I wanted to talk, one of the things that is frustrating about uh, Telegram is they kind of have, they have like a secret chat or private chat. Like they have a couple of different options that don't necessarily mean what they, they sound like they mean to, to most people. Yeah. So that's actually one thing our report found. So private chat and secret chat are in fact the same thing. Um, they're just called slightly different things in the app, which for, for again, for, for those listening that are, don't have a background in design, that's bad design. That's actually, not that's not professional that's a that is a mistake 
Um, there's no reason for a feature to have like two different names inside of, inside of your software. Um, and so I don't know if that's an oversight on their part. I'm assuming so. Um, but like those two things correlate to the same feature. And so they should actually be called the same thing. But then even further, that being said, what does private mean to a user? What does secret mean? Um, you know, Facebook Messenger, they call their encrypted message secure or no, they also call it secret. Sorry. They also call it secret, but like, does that mean security? Does that mean encrypted? And so that's like one of the, one of the weird things where it's like, you know, I think by using a very sort of like normalized or culturally almost like emotional name, like private, it makes something seem like it's actually quite safe when in fact um, it's not. And there's a variety of reasons as why like Telegram is not not a very secure app that I will let uh, Cooper Cooper talk about more. Yeah, I would never advise anybody to have a chat over Telegram if they are uh, concerned about the privacy of that yeah. chat. So we were talking about friction and the the fact that end and encrypted chats are not the default in Telegram creates a friction for users to have uh, an actually secure chat. Right, you have totally. to go remember to turn it on. And, and you can only turn it on, turn it on individually per message. It's not like an overall feature on Telegram or Facebook Messenger. Like you have to go select a specific, like the specific yeah, per secret conversation. per conversation, which is, and another thing our report gets into is how also those chats don't look very different. They look almost identical to a normal chat. So for, for low vision users um, or, or anyone with any kind of like, disability especially a vision related disability it's almost impossible to it's like nearly impossible to recognize which chat you're using um if you're looking at the chat logs yeah outside of that like if people you know in terms of like things that may not be options right now i think basically everyone listening signals a perfectly viable option but it's not impossible that for example you might wind up in a country where uh, even if there's not a specific law against it, there is a precedent established that if you have signal on your phone, you know, it it can be at least used as a justification for charges that you were planning to do. So like, um, you know, Atlanta, people are getting charges because they had a lawyer's name written on their arm. Right. And and so the state saying, well, that's evidence they were planning to commit a crime. Um you know, that doesn't mean that convictions will go through on that kind of thing, but it may be a reason why signal might not be an option um, or say, you know, something comes out about it that makes it seem less secure. What are other good or uh, or acceptable options? And, and I know when we're talking about this, these are often options that require more input and work from the user in order to maximize their potential security. But I, I do think it's good to like let people kind of know what else is out there. Yeah. So when Signal isn't an option, WhatsApp is actually not a bad option. Um, so WhatsApp, it is owned by Meta, which is a you know, which is which is uh, can, you know not which is not ideal. Um, but WhatsApp actually uses the same encryption protocol as Signal. Uh, so like under the hood, the way that the you know the way that the math works to hide your messages from the NSA is exactly the same, right? Um, and and they've implemented it well. You know there are a a few more steps that you know a few more precautions that you need to take with WhatsApp, like making sure that your chats aren't backed up, being the main one. But WhatsApp is certainly good enough, right? If you're if you're 
you know, chat networks aren't using Signal if you're in a country where you can't use Signal, right? Like WhatsApp has 2 billion users. I'm, you know, it's, it's, you can use WhatsApp almost anywhere in the world. It's, and it's ubiquitous enough that it's not going to mark you as, you know, somebody with something to hide, right? And like, and I don't want to, I don't want to um, discount WhatsApp, right? Getting 2 billion people to have end-to-end encrypted messaging by default overnight basically was a major coup like that that was world changing right and like they they really do deserve applause for that obviously you know i think partly because of their scale partly because they're owned by meta right they haven't taken all of these same steps like they do have more um metadata uh, on their servers than than signal does Right. But if that's your option, that is a fine option. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really good to know, particularly since uh, options are always more secure than not having any kind of a, a backup plan. Totally. And if people are like even slightly nervous about WhatsApp, a great thing is they do have disappearing messages. The downside is like the fastest disappearing message is only 24 hours. But that's something that, again, you still have. Um, and I, that's like, that is, that is an amazing feature. Yeah. And that, that kind of gets into also what kind of stuff you can do in order to maximize the value of features like that. Like for example, if you're coming back into the country or a country and your phone gets confiscated by customs or whatever, because security services have some sort of eye on you for whatever reason, if you've got you know, um, thumbprint uh, uh, login or face login, they're going to get into that phone, right? And your 24-hour delete thing may not have gotten taken care of everything. If you've got like a complicated eight-digit password and no biometrics enabled, maybe depending on where you are and whatnot, that'll keep your phone locked long enough for those messages to get deleted, right? Like it's all about kind of maximizing the chances that something like that helps. Yeah, exactly. We we definitely recommend that people turn on disappearing messages. Um, I think that that's just a good, sensible default to have. Um, also, definitely recommend that if you're going to be in a situation where you think you're going to be, you know, there's a higher likelihood of you interacting with law enforcement, if you're crossing a border, if you're going to a protest, turn off the biometric unlock on your phone, certainly. Um, especially in the U.S., there's the, the, the case law isn't settled, but there's a lot of state courts that have decided that police can force you to unlock your phone with your biometrics and that that's totally fine. Um, so this, you know, in the, in the U S context, it's a good idea in any context. I think it's a good idea if you're at heightened risk to turn off mm-hmm. uh, totally. biometric unlocks. I mean, one thing we're also a big fan of is figuring out too, like, and this is again, where threat modeling is so key is like, is this a circumstance where you need your phone? Um, or another yeah. thing that, you know, you can always do if you are nervous about traveling across the border is you can, delete signal and reinstall it and everything is gone. You can delete WhatsApp temporarily while you're crossing a border. So it's not on your phone. Um, You know, there are things like that you can do if you feel comfortable wiping your phone. That's something also you can do. Um, You know, these are all again, these are these are these are different things. And I think this is one of the things our, our report I don't remember how too much we get into it, but something that at least we've been thinking about Cooper and I run a little lab called complication. And um, one of the things um, we've been thinking about there is just also how do we instill sort of like better, better holistic practices where, where we understand that a, a phone is just one component of our safety. 
Um, and so like secure messaging, encrypted messaging is one component of that safe safety. So like, what are other things we can do? Um, and some of that can be, you know, wiping your phone if traveling, if that makes sense for you, or if that's yeah. something that makes you feel safer or removing certain apps and then, you know, reinstalling them, reinstalling them later. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it really is holistic, right? Like a thing that, a thing that people need to keep in mind is that, you know, disappearing messages can't stop uh, an untrustworthy uh, uh, conversation partner, right? right? Like I, if, if, if my conversation partner is untrustworthy, they can take screenshots of the messages, right? They can, you know, go, they can go snitch to law enforcement about what I've told them, right? Uh, um, encrypted messaging, disappearing messages, these are not panaceas, right? You still have to, you still have to keep all of your other uh, uh, aspects of, of security as well, right? True. And so yeah. don't, don't entirely rely on these technologies to save you, right? You have to also trust the people you're working with and, and build these layers of security. Up. It's true. I mean, Cooper, you could leak all of my secrets right now on this podcast and you've yeah. chosen not to. What a gentleman. And what that a is, scholar. that is the other thing, right? Where um, when it comes to like, what is secure, one thing to remember is that signal uh, for all the good things about it. Nothing, nothing at all about that app stops the recipient of a message from you from taking a screen grab or just handing their phone over to a, to their friendly local federal agent. Right. Yeah. Um, which is always, you know, I, I, I we, we don't want to be, I'm not trying to be a security nihilist here. I think, you know, there's no replacing communication over phones in many situations, but if you are, for example, going to be, transferring a bunch of uh, 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 plan B pills in an area where that is prosecutable, that probably shouldn't go on your phone in that language, right? Perhaps, you know, uh, you, you could come up with a clever code word or whatever, but don't, don't, um, you know, it, it is security is like you said, holistic, you know, you should not be um, looking at it as just like, well, the app is secure. So that's enough. I mean, one thing I also want people to sort of think about, too, because that's a really great point, Robert, is like we do all different kinds of things every day in our lives that could, you know, endanger us. Like, I think um, a lot of the, the work I do is I work a lot with people facing all different kinds of online harassment. So like falling in love, for example, is a dangerous yeah. thing to do. Yeah. You could have your heart broken or that person could hurt you um, learning how to trust people, you know, um, crossing the street, deciding to jaywalk, right? Yeah. All different things we do sort of every day actually can expose us to harm. And so one thing I think for people listening to keep in mind is that's the same when we have conversations. And I think a way to avoid nihilism is just to remember that, that every day we are sort of going out there and actually being incredibly brave just by living our everyday yeah. lives, by deciding to be in community and have friendships and have relationships. Um, and in my case, I love jaywalking and Mm -hmm. uh, no one around me does. And that's why that's my choice. And I have not yet gotten hit by a car jaywalking. Yeah. I think it's good to look at this the same way. There's a, there's a concept that, um, the military has sort of developed when talking about how not to die when, when you're in a gunfight or something, it's called the survivability onion. Right. And I think it's extremely useful, both if you're talking about like, well, I'm going to a protest and there will be violence there. You know, should I wear armor, et cetera? Um, but it's also just really it's really useful with any kind of security. And and the onion, it's it's envisioned as an onion because like the largest outside chunk of it is 
Don't be seen. Don't be acquired, which means somebody actually getting you in their head sights. Don't be uh, hit, which means being behind cover or or something. And then the very internal part of it is like have some sort of armor in case you are shot. But if you if the armor is useful, the majority of the onion has already failed, right? If encryption is useful, that is not a, a dissimilar sort of situation, right? So there's a there's a degree of canniness is 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 super helpful in thinking about like what is a, what is visible about me if I'm doing something that right. I, I know that I have to be extra concerned about the state seeing what is visible about me from the outside. You know, totally. I mean, I think that's an amazing thing to think about. Like, where where are you sending a text message? Are mm-hmm. you in a place in which like someone can lean over? Like, I'm the nosiest motherfucker in all the time. I'm constantly like like looking around, being like, what's that person watching on an airplane? Or like, if mm-hmm. someone is sitting next to me scrolling. So like. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to like send a sensitive text message like next to me because I'd be like, "That's that's interesting fodder." That's I'm gonna show me a Texas to Cooper later, <laughs> um, you know. And so I think it's important to think about that. Like, like, who's around you? Is this is like how are you describing something? Do you know the person you're messaging? If you're in a group message, do you know everybody there? Like, do you trust all of them? Um, you know, and if you're ever nervous, there are, this is, I guess, the upside also to in-person conversations. You can have, you know, a phone call or an in-person conversation with someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really not sure or you don't feel comfortable even sending something over signal, that might be the time to be like, hey, do you want to meet up and get a coffee? And then, you know, um, try to find a discreet place to have have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, um, I do want to roll to ads real quick one second, and then I think Cooper had something to say, and we'll uh, we'll continue. But first, products. Ah, we're back. Cooper, you look like you had uh, something to add on that. Nothing particularly serious, just that I think that that's, I think that that's really good advice for the military yeah. and absolutely justifies the $900 billion budget. Yeah, I'm glad they put together a, a, a fucking uh, graphic. Uh, I wonder yeah. how many billions of dollars that did yeah. cost. Yeah. I, could, I, I could make a graphic for hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. If, anybody, if anybody wants to fund us for hundreds of millions, we, we'll do it for us now. A mere hundreds of millions. We have yeah. so many good T-shirt ideas and sticker ideas, y'all. Like yeah. so many good ones, so many unhinged ones that the world needs to see. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I do. I guess just because of the amount of time I've spent thinking about this stuff from my my old job, there are a couple of concepts from uh, military planning I think about in this context, and one of them that I also think is relevant to what we're talking about with friction is, is the concept of an Oda loop, right? Which is how do you win in, in combat against an opponent? And it's by disrupting this thing called the Oda loop. And the Oda loop is how, how an adversary carries out actions in a conflict like this, right? And the, the steps you have to go for are observe, orient, decide, and act. And if you can disrupt any stage of that, you can stop them from taking actions, right? Which is stops them from being able to harm you. And the good security is is going to impact all three of those things, right? It's going to stop them from being able to see you sometimes. If they can see you, stuff like, you know, we, we you were just talking, we were just talking earlier about um link previews, right? And how that can kind of expose maybe who you're in communication with potentially. Well, that could allow the state to orient themselves to you and to your friends, right? Um, and obviously stuff like 
locking down your devices, not having unnecessarily info online can stop them from being able to decide, you know, what you're doing and and how they should respond to that. And I, I think that's also good if you're thinking, if you're not just somebody who is concerned about your security, like most people are, because it's good to have some security, if you're actually dealing with the state or a corporation as an adversary in some way, it can be useful to think about your security culture in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. It's, it's, and I think that it's, you know, it points to like, we should, we should understand what the, you know, mode of, of thinking of our adversaries is, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, you know, we should, if your adversary is the NSA, right? Which is like, probably actually not most people in the US, yeah. like for most US activists, the NSA is not actually your biggest adversary, right? No. Like, your biggest adversary is going to be local police, right? Your biggest mm-hmm. adversary is going to be, um, you know, the, the, you know, somebody like your abusive partner, right? And you yeah. need to, and this yeah. is why threat yeah. modeling is important because you need to, to really, to really think about, you know, think through like, you know, well, okay, wait, am I actually worried about protecting myself from the NSA or am I more worried about, uh, uh, you know, the, the racist police officer that, that drives down my street every day. Right. And yeah. probably it's the latter. And so you can, you can take a lot more useful actions. Right. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, you can, you can, you know, break that Oda loop for him once you know actually what it is. Right. Yeah. If you're defending yourself against the NSA, you're going to leave yourself wide open to the actual threat. Yeah. It's totally, it, I think a great example. And I, I don't mean to be like, quote unquote, subtweeting somebody here, but I've, I've known a couple of folks like this. It's like if you have if you're super paranoid, you're not putting anything online, you're only talking with your close friends, you use a dumb phone, you have burners, but you also drive around with a shitload of weed in your car in a state where that's illegal. Well, it's like, well, right. <laughs> like your your threat modeling is not great in that situation. Right. Or like I do all totally. that, but I carry an illegal handgun with me wherever right. I go. It's like, well, like, that may be mm-hmm. more of a threat than your phone. <laughs> My partner the other day was like, what if I got a dumb phone? I was like, what if I divorced you? Like, <laughs> like, what if mm-hmm. they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I'm going to be the one using all the maps for both of us yeah. and having to Google all the dumb shit you want to Google. That doesn't make I'm now your weakest link. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Um, but also I was like, I'm absolutely not going to be your 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 Google Maps bitch. Like, yeah. I'm not not doing that. But, um, but I mean, I think also, you know, to, to both y'all's points to get serious again for a second, I mean, you know, like my threat model, for example, um, might be similar or slightly different, maybe slightly less serious than, than Cooper's, but you know, like some of the, like the, the, the journalists in India we were working with have quite a high threat model, right? Like, um, the Indian police force are very much like the NSA. They're very talented. They have a lot of money and tech at their disposal. And that might be different for some of the activists we're working with, let's say in like Louisiana or Texas. Right. Um, But the difference is, is like, we're still talking about, I would argue two brutal police forces that just have different means of disposal at their hands. Um, So like the Louisiana police are, our groups you should totally be worried about. They might not be able to hack your phone, to, but maybe eventually they could. But there are other, there are obviously other things to worry about with them. But, you know, um, in the context of like with some of the folks we are working with um, in the South, like reproductive justice activists, some of the things are probably much more 
um, serious in terms of your threat model would be like a nurse for someone who, um, let's say, is miscarrying or has sought an abortion. I and mean, this is something Kate Bertosh from the Digital Defense Fund, a friend um, of, of you know, ours has talked about, where like the people that are supposed to take care of you might be the ones that are actually your your biggest threat. Right. The ones that um, have heard you say something or you've confided in, for example. Yeah. And and that is kind of a horrifying thing to think about. But that is that is a thing you have to threat model. Right. Is is it, can I trust this person? How am I describing, you know, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, did y'all have anything else you wanted to make sure to get into in, in this conversation? There's so much more in your in, in the great paper you you helped co-author, What is Secure? An Analysis of Popular Messaging Apps uh, on the Tech Policy Press. But um, yeah, is there anything else y'all wanted to really make sure you hit before we roll out? Yeah, please don't use Telegram for a variety of reasons, but also yeah. like it's very unclear how they respond to any law enforcement or government. They don't say anything and it's mm-hmm. kind of impossible to reach anyone that works there. Please don't use Facebook Messenger other than maybe sending memes. Um, There's a lot of really gross surveillance capitalism inside of Facebook Messenger that the paper gets into, but effectively Meta is building this weird sprawling infrastructure inside of Facebook Messenger to try to link Facebook and Instagram. And one of the things we noticed is that like if you've blocked someone on Instagram or muted them, but you haven't blocked or muted them on Facebook, that your stories, like all those stories are still coming across in Messenger. So you can still see content um, from someone because it's linking both of those, both of those profiles. Um, so, you know, you could see how we're taking like an online harassment lens, like why that's, why that's really bad, why that's really harmful and um, could be potentially, you know, uh, upsetting and triggering for folks. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll add that um, I think my the, the major thing I want people to, to think about is that encryption really does work and it works really well. And and we can see that because a lot of countries right now are trying to pass laws that either weaken or ban encryption. Right. And in fact, the UK uh, uh, did pass did just pass such a law, the the online safety bill in the UK. And so it's really important that we that we you know push back against these laws and fight back against these laws, um, and and wh- whenever we can, right? And I'm not I'm not coming at this as somebody who's a big believer in the um, you know in, in incrementalism and in, in in working with governments, but I think that I still think that it's really important to you know uh, educate folks and push back against these laws and try to not let these pass because these will be you know, really bad for all of us. Mm-hmm. Totally. And not to defend the online safety bill, because I would never do that. I'll go to my grave, not speaking highly of it, uh, only speaking critically, at least like the pushback from encryption experts and encryption supporters like Meredith Whitaker, president of Signal, did lead to lawmakers in the UK, for example, admitting that there's no sort of feasible safe way to build a backdoor. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, also a win. Um, because, because of so much pushback, because of so much research, because of so much criticism that security and privacy folks gave people that are pro encryption, like that we, you know, we were able to walk back that part. And I, I do think that's a, a, a big deal, even, even if there are other issues with that bill, because I think it also sends a signal pun intended to other governments, um, as well, um, and I think that that's incredibly important. But yeah, I would also say just just use Signal whenever you can. Um, but yeah. Yeah. 
Well, all right, folks, uh, that is going to be it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Um, yeah, uh, thank you all for listening, and thank you, Cooper and Carolyn, for uh, for coming on. Thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah thank you for having us. Uh, you can find us on social media for now, I guess, until it all lights on fire. Yeah, whichever one you want to trust. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. I'm, I'm Cooper Q on most social medias, Blue Sky, Mastodon shitter yeah i'm caroline cinders my first name last name um our lab is convocation research and design uh record labs on twitter at the moment mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get be getting on blue sky very soon yeah yeah i'll probably be get back on there more now twitter has uh gotten remarkably worse uh which you know we had a Back on back in the day on uh, the old something awful forums, there was a, a a thread in one of the debate forums about this very right wing site called Free Republic, which was like one of the earliest reservoirs of what became Trumpism. And the the tagline for the thread, just kind of watching these people, was "There is always more, and it is always worse." And boy, goddamn, if that hasn't been a continually accurate statement about the whole the whole of social media right now. Isn't it kind of amazing to watch someone just light $40 billion on fire? Yeah. Just like totally. There is is a beauty to it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the nihilist in me being like, wow. Comrade Musk really, uh, really taking some hits to capitalism here. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. 
Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's me, James, today. I am back from my trip uh, to Kurdistan, and uh, I'm talking today with Rania Hayat, uh, a name that I've probably just butchered. Uh, but Rania is the communications officer for the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate, and uh, we're very, very lucky to have Rania talking to us. Welcome, Rania. Thank you, James. Um, thank you for um, contacting me and ha- letting me be letting me uh, with you. Yeah, of course. Uh, you're very mm-hmm. welcome. So I think, Rania, it, it's it's been a really hard time to consume news. Like for the first week of, of what's happening, I, I was in uh, mostly Syrian and Iraqi Kurdistan, and I wasn't maybe consuming as much news as I normally do because I was trying to write news instead. Uh, and then I got back, and I, just the, the barrage of information and disinformation has been very hard for people to sort of wade through. And I wonder, I think one of the things I'd like us to focus on first and foremost is the impact of Israel's bombing campaign on journalists specifically working in Gaza. Um, I know like friends of mine are journalists in Gaza. We featured on this podcast before the the people of Parkour Gaza. uh, and, And I know that many journalists have lost their lives covering what's been happening. So can you explain a little bit about uh, like what's been happening and, and maybe bring us up to date on the amount of every loss is a tragedy, but like the amount of people who have lost their lives covering this? Yes, uh, James. Uh, well, let's start that journalists mm-hmm. in Gaza are civilians who are people who tra- travel, they work, um, usually they should travel, but they work, they yeah. they do their job, they try to cover the news with very hard conditions, with the daily life of Gaza. Since the beginning of the war against Gaza uh, on the 7th of October, um, you know how the war started targeting everything in Gaza, um, yeah. not even all, all the people, more than the people, you know, the, the buildings, the, the children, the... Um, even the animals, the, the plants, you know, it's just bombing and bombing and bombing airstrikes mm-hmm. the whole time. Um, at the beginning, we tried to, we have some, our contacts uh, with journalists in Gaza. We have our uh, um, um, general secretary member and so on. We try to get information from them. At the beginning, yeah, it was not easy, but it was okay to get some information about what's going on. But by the time now we reached to a place that when I call them, they told, uh, they always tell dozens of, um, we don't know. Um, we are disconnected. Um, I'm homeless now. Um, I am not able to, to get any news. I can't tell you about my friend or my neighbor next to me, but I'm not able to tell you about further than this. 
Um, I will just give some statistics. Um, yeah. Up to now, we have 18 killed journalists who have been either killed while, while covering, uh, uh, others were killed in their homes, mm -hmm. um, being uh, through airstrikes with their families and so on. Um, we have also um, many, many journalists who have dozens of them have been injured. I'm, I'm really sorry. I was I wanted to have some, um, you know, accurate statistics, but yeah. I can't give you until mm -hmm. now. We are now try, trying to develop uh, like a tool to get some um, statistics. But until now, it's not working well. Yeah. Um, we have uh, many journalists who lost their homes, homes because it was bomb bombed or uh, yeah, airstrike. Others, uh, they were um, uh, um, displaced. Yeah, and uh, many of them moved from their homes either because their homes was bombed or other because they were threatened to stay at their home safely, so they go to other uh, like um, schools, hospitals, and so on. Um, the most tragic is the the journalists who are losing their families. When you call a journalist to ask, ask him about anything, they tell you, okay, I lost my son, I lost my wife, I lost all my family, I lost my mother now. Um, they, are, they, are, they are completely broken. You can't talk to them. They are, you know, it's really a very tragic situation. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it's literally unimaginable. Like, it's, yeah. I think I I've attended wars. I've lost friends, but nothing. I can't imagine what it's like on this scale, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's heartbreaking to even think mm -hmm. about it. And I think yeah. some of what you said, obviously, like part of the situation this creates is that it's very hard to do reporting on the ground. It's always been hard to do reporting on the ground in Gaza. Um, yes. Like I, I, um, I had made plans to go to Gaza, uh, which probably won't work out now. Um, but like it's hard for foreign press, and of course there are many very capable journalists within Gaza. We don't need you know foreign press to go there necessarily. But could you explain a little bit of how, when this war started, it didn't just like affect these people in terms of, of killing them, killing their families, uh, displacing them, destroying their homes. But also, like, every day this war goes on, it gets harder for us to see, I think, the impact of this war on civilians living in Gaza, right, because of the damage to infrastructure. Is that fair to say? Yes, uh, this is what's going on. And, uh, yes, reporting is getting more and more compli complicated um, mm -hmm. because, as also, you know, there is no electricity. I mean, mm -hmm. communication is very, very difficult. Um, when sometimes through phone call, I call them just to get something. They tell me, okay, let, wait until I get some internet and I will get back to you. I wait for hours and hours, sometimes for the second day to get a little information. So you can imagine how they can even contact with each other. Yeah. And yeah, and that makes it very hard. I think often like we might have more info this is not uncommon actually like you have more information sitting somewhere with a broadband connection and access to twitter than you do on the ground right like they may not know everything that's happening yes um yeah i don't know <laughs> um uh, if i can talk about this but you know yeah, about the restrictions uh mm -hmm. that uh, on all social media applications uh, the restrictions on the Palestinian contact, content mm -hmm. on the social media. Um, we're facing a big 
a massive wave against our content, against our news through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the those um, applications. So we are not able even to reach. Many people are banned, many people are hacked, and we are just hearing about the banning of many accounts of Palestinians, um, the the very limited reach, the mal- mm-hmm. very limited, and they are sometimes many times they are blocked or yeah blocked or from posting and so on. Mm-hmm. So even also this is another problem that we are facing to reach out. Yeah, I think this this in a sense, obviously like it's in terms of specifically getting information about it because I think that is important. I think if people could understand what it's like to see someone lose their baby uh, mm-hmm. and then I think very few people would be able to in good conscience support that um and the fact that this has come at a time when I think generally uh, certainly for the u s reporting on things outside the US is an all-time low. Like it, it's atrocious. And mm-hmm. so people lack the context to understand, not through any fault of their own, right? But they've just been fed terrible, you know, opinion pieces for the last mm-hmm. few years. They lack the context to understand why what's happening is happening. And I think obviously Elon Musk has bought Twitter um, and 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 just it's a cesspool it's terrible it's full of false information and as you say often videos that like i have friends who are photographers in in gaza i have friends who are just people in gaza and uh videos that they post will be taken down it sometimes they'll just say it's too graphic it's too violent but like also that's their everyday life now that's been happening for two weeks yes yeah graphic violence is sadly what's visited upon them every day yeah yes um believe me um that what's going on in gaza is is very you can't imagine you can't um, hold it when you when you watch yeah. it even the tv channels they try to make to minimize uh, what how yes. dangerous and how violent are the, the the scenes that we see um at the same time i had a discussion this morning um yeah. i don't want people to cry for us it's not I don't want people to cry for the babies uh, killed and so with very hard pictures and videos I, I just want uh, humanity mm-hmm. without seeing the video just hear that there is a child is losing his child children thousands mm-hmm. of children are losing yeah. their child's life for nothing are losing their hands their legs their uh, they are now uh, handicapped uh, they don't know why yeah. We, don't, we don't need to see the video. Just know mm-hmm. that this is going on. We don't want to make a tragedy. We don't want to to to, to people to cry with us when I, we cry. Yes, we want okay some solidarity, but it's mm-hmm. it's not something to have the emotions and then then we sleep and then we wake up. Oh, that's what all. No, no, there is something going on. Mm-hmm. We don't need the sympathy. No, we need some actions. We need steps. We need humanity now. Yeah. So I think that's an excellent, really, really excellent point. Like it's not a film or like something you can consume and then step away from. So what sort of solidarity actions can people take to support people in Gaza, to support journalists there, to support the greater cause of uh, not having this issue where, where every few years thousands of Palestinian civilians get killed? 
Yes. Well, to be honest, we want when we want to feel better, we turn on the television to see the demonstrations. When we see the demonstrations, London, Bruxelles, um, United States, in different uh, cities, um, Arab world, everywhere. When we mm-hmm. see these demonstrations, we feel that somebody knows there is a, like a kind of movement. This helps us, and we need further steps after the demonstration. We need lobbying. We need the people who elect their governments, who support those massacres, and to say, no, we we give you legitimacy to be human. Stop this inhumanity. We need the people to lobby on their governments that this should not be supported. This is is the real action that we need. Lobbying, lobbying, lobbying by the Mm -hmm. people, by the power of people. Yeah, I think. It's one of those things, like some things will never change in America, at least not by voting, but like some things, yeah, if, if enough people, and I think more people, like I remember when I, I moved to America 15 years ago, uh, when I was very yeah. young, I was 21, and I, I came into America and I had a free Palestine, like a badge on my jacket, yeah. I like to sew yeah. things on my jacket, you know, and uh, they, they sent me straight to, to secondary, you know, like the, the, like where they pat you down and take all your clothes and go through your bags and such. And like, it just wasn't as big of a concern. I think more people in the 15 years since then have become aware of the tragedy and the loss of life. And certainly now I've seen more people wake up to what's happening and, and uh, like protest or, um, you know, get out and, and do things in a way that they, they wouldn't have done 10 years ago. And I think it, that's really, uh, it's good. Like, and it, hopefully that demand for like people to be allowed to live with dignity and safety continues. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I just always want to ask anybody, like to say, are you going? Are you happy to pay your tax for killing others? Is it? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. This is the the very initial, very first question. Are you happy with this? Do you pay your tax for this or for any anything that you like to have your tax be, to be paid for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is what we want. We are we are facing killing. We are facing assassination yeah. and bombarding and so on. And we need uh, all what we need is humanity, nothing mm-hmm. else. I was thinking this morning of like how, like very obviously, right when when Russia bombed Ukrainian cities, most people said we should help the Ukrainians, send them arms, send them medical supplies. Some of them went and volunteered to fight for the Ukrainians. When, uh. And I understand that, like this, obviously this this conflict began in very different circumstances uh, than the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But nonetheless, like little little children are being killed and continue to be killed, um, and the response wasn't the same. And I think some of that comes from like a not particularly hard to see Orientalism in in the U.S. and the U.S. media. Also, some of it comes from the complete absence of Palestinian voices in. in certainly in like the English language press in America. Um, and I wonder, like, I know that there are certain organizations which have specifically worked to make it harder for Palestinian journalists, like my friend Hossam Salem. Uh, he's an excellent photographer. Um, you can find him on all the in- places where you find people on the internet. Uh, we worked on stories together. And mm-hmm. like, I know he's, he's now had, he's lost contract with major outlets um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of this sort of campaign of accusing him of bias, I think. Um, it's, it's hard not to be biased when you see little children die. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about that, like how Palestinian voices are excluded or missing from, even now, right? The Atlantic, since two weeks of bombing now, 
And I was looking this morning, and they've managed to find two Palestinian voices to share. Like, like, um, you know, it, it's uh, maybe not. And I'll have to check that after we've done. But um, I was flicking through these big sort of opinion piece type outlets, and it's very clear that, like, even now, people mm-hmm. haven't, like, editors specifically or the greater press has not stopped excluding Palestinian voices. So maybe we could talk about like how that happens, what allows that to happen, and what people can do to, to help lift up those voices? Well, yes, uh, Palestinian voices are, are being banned uh, all over by different movements. Um, they are many times fired from their works and big mm-hmm. um, news uh, outlets and uh, um, uh, media outlets for different political reasons. And if you want to go and through the stories, you find that some people are just trying to make... Um, um, to, to, to to make problems for those people to let them leave their work and stop writing mm-hmm. or uh, telling the news or analyzing or anything yeah. about the Palestinian cause and what's going on. We're facing this globally and we have many cases recorded in, uh, and documented in the PGS and we, we can give you many examples about them. Yeah. Um, but I, I have to tell about something that um, mm-hmm. we ha- we are a member of the International Federation of Journalists, and uh, we have uh, also even our president of uh, Palestinian, Palestinian Journalist Syndicate. He's a vice president of the International Federation of Journalists. He has been elected in last year mm-hmm. in the last Congress. Um, we have sister unions. One of them, one of the best friends of us are the National uh, Writers Union the American National Writers Union, uh, which is a very big supporter to us. Um, they even, um, Larry um, Goldbetter, uh, the general secretary, even he visited us in Palestine a few months ago, and he is a very supporter of mm-hmm. what's going on, um, of all our statements, of our news. At the beginning of the war, he, they they uh, produced uh, like um a statement about biasity and um, and misleading news and so on, how to avoid them, um, supporting the Palestinians, supporting the our life, our right to life, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we will highly appreciate this movement. Of course, he's not the only one. Many, many syndicates, many unions all over mm-hmm. the world sent us solidarity letters. Um, some of them supported us even with some in-kind contribution, with some funds in addition to solidarity, in addition to demonstrations and so on, which which really gave us a lot of power, of hope, so we can continue and we are not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And if, well, I mean, it's not enough, but it's something that unions, I think people also, if they're members of a union, can encourage their union to do that, right? Just to make a statement. Um, yeah. Just to show some solidarity. I wonder, like, what, um, you talked about in-kind donations and you talked about the support you're getting from unions. I know uh, one of the unions, I'm, which I'm a member, the Industrial Workers of the World, uh, FJU, uh, just did a f- fundraiser or is still doing a fundraiser for um, flak vests, like bulletproof vests for journalists. Mm-hmm. What kind of support can people give, like in a concrete sense, beyond getting in the streets and protesting and writing letters and emails and phone calls? Uh, is there stuff that they can do with their money if they have some money? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's not a kind of money. It's a yeah. kind of um, I will tell you now in yeah. the in the, the situation in Gaza, we we can't all what we do we need is a ceasefire. To yeah. be to be honest, uh, they even don't have fresh water to drink. By the way, yani they say try to minimize the that the water they drink, and they know that the water they drink is not very clean, but yeah. just to survive. So you can start with this very basic need of life, and then you go. F- Further, um, as I already told you, um, the, the safety vests are very important. But when you mm. are under air strikes, this will never help you. But if I want to talk about the daily life, about how it's going in the West mm-hmm. Bank and Gaza, our journalists, uh, we all work under the same conditions of yes. um, aggressive um, um, events covering uh, aggressive events and so on. So um, we try as PJS to to contact all the media outlets in Palestine to offer or provide uh, safety kits for all journalists who work in the field. But for example, our, um, our freelancers mm-hmm. they they work on their uh, uh, own responsibility and a very yeah. dangerous situation yeah. we try to 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 tell how dangerous that what they do when you go to cover with you don't have very full safety um uh, kits or vests yeah. it's it's very dangerous for them but they are not able to to cover it and they want to they need to work they need to do their job so they do it in a very strained uh, sorry dangerous uh, conditions so uh, one of the things that we can support journalists is yes safety kits mm-hmm. uh, which as are very important um, medical uh, kits also are very important mm. um what what else <laughs> 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 yeah, we try. We try to 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 do. Um, also, we try to be, to raise the awareness to make some materials for the the, the journalists about safety. Mm-hmm. Safety is very important for us. We try to 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 teach them more about how to take care of themselves, how to report, and so on about their security and so on. Yeah. Um, this is mainly what I can talk about uh, for for the needs or the in-kind contribution. As I told yeah. you, in the current situation, for example, we try to support uh, through some donations, through support uh, to support the journalists with um, better charging batteries because of the lack of electricity and power sources in Gaza. So mm-hmm. just to keep them connected currently, and they are very useful for them, and uh, it it helps now. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. it it's, yeah. it's probably best that you guys just have money and then you can be flexible in getting what people need. I think that's generally the best advice is when there's a crisis is to send the people nearest to it money and then they can decide what they need. Uh, I certainly I found <laughs> that I found that in a lot of places I yes. worked. Um, yes. So you talked about the power situation. I think that sort of it has gone relatively unreported. I mean, it'll still say like the power and water been cut off, but that creates a lot of other dangerous situations, right? Like obviously some people rely on that power if, if they're infirm, if they have medical devices, that kind of thing. But also like where there are places to charge that results in a very high concentration of people, right? Like my friend was telling me that their parents were in a hospital to charge their their devices, right? They wanted to call their child and say, we're safe, we're alive, but their phone had run out of battery. So they had to go to the hospital. Yeah, can you explain a little bit of some of the things that like that that has resulted in the loss of power for people? 
Yes, of course. Um, for example, first of all, let me tell you that we mm -hmm. already in, uh, asked or requested all our journalists in Gaza to be in the hospitals mm -hmm. uh, for their safety. We try. We, yeah. we expect that this it would be a place, safe place, but there is no safe place in Gaza now, mm -hmm. as you all already know about the hospitals that have been uh, um, targeted. But uh, we, we already asked them to be in the hospitals. We try to make some press zones in the hospitals, some places where it's for press, for journalists to be there yeah. so they can get some electricity power. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can all to be together, uh, try to exchange information and work together. Uh, so it will be better for them to work and safer um, mm -hmm. between brackets always uh, for yeah. them to work. Um, uh, to be honest, yes, uh, I don't know if you see the news mm -hmm. now. It's, uh, it's the, we had uh, the sun has set, uh, so it's completely dark in Gaza. You just yeah. can have some lightened spots, which are the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And you know that the, even the solar and the uh, sorry, the fuel for school for uh, uh, hospitals is about to to. Mm -hmm. Right to finish yeah, yeah. and uh, in two days i think maximum but we will see maybe they will have some trucks or they will get something inside gaza for fuel and so on but i'm not sure about this yeah i think uh, yeah yeah every day it's changing i guess um mm -hmm. and i wonder like talking about getting things into gaza getting getting things uh to people in gaza a thing that seems to be completely like i don't know it genuinely seems to me that people think people could just walk out of gaza and 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 you know go somewhere else uh, I, so i guess just to be extremely clear on that can you explain mm -hmm. like the situation for people in gaza with respect to if, if they their mobility and their ability to leave because i think it's something that again has been like criminally overlooked in the united states discourse um, ability to leave Gaza, you mean? Yeah, yeah, like, like <laughs> or lack thereof would be more accurate, right? Like the, the complete absence of that. Well, unfortunately, people in Gaza are blocked. Mm -hmm. They are all, in, they are not allowed to leave Gaza with any yeah. kind of borders, even the people who have international passports, like mm -hmm. American, European, or whatever yeah. passports, they are not allowed, they are not able to leave Gaza. Uh, they have to face their fate now. They are just displaced from place to another. Some people have been displaced four times in four areas, different areas, yeah. and others were displaced and bombed mm -hmm. later. So no, uh, they are blocked. Yeah. They have they are blocked in a, like a very limited area, which is under strikes the whole time. No place is safe. Um, even the the Baptist hospital. They thought that it would be a Baptist hospital, a hospital related to a church and so on. Mm -hmm. It was uh, striked massively, cruelly. More than yeah. 500 have been killed. They were all children. Mothers are sitting just as a shelter, thinking that it would be a shelter for them. So, yes, this is the situation in Gaza. There is mm -hmm. no safe place, no hospitals. If you are in a hospital, you will be bombed. If you are in a school, you will be bombed. If you are in a mosque, if you will be bombed. If you are in a church, you will be bombed. No safe place, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's unimaginable. And like, I, I don't know, it, the, the, 
actor bombing like we were talking about this before we started but like um when you're being bombed it's very different from like a small arms conflict or even like a you know whatever artillery mortars rockets like you mm-hmm. there isn't much you can do to be safe it's not like there is no like cover from bombs you know that you you, you uh there's no there way is you no can hide shelters from them. in Gaza yeah. by the way there is no underground mm-hmm. shelters yeah yeah and now they are intense by the way they were in houses <laughs> houses they were falling on their heads so they went to tents so when the tent falls it's uh, not so yeah jesus yeah it's it's bleak yeah. but it's uh yeah it, it's it's unimaginable like i said yeah. um like yeah. i just spent a week in a place that was being very they frequent. are protected by the sky which is full of planes bombing mm-hmm. them Yeah, yes. yeah, and every time you look up, you wonder what that is, and is this still time or is this still one? So I think one thing people are really struggling with is like overload of information, uh, misinformation, right? Uh, just some of the worst pieces I've ever seen in opinion pieces, on things sent on social media, which are like, like it seems that we've returned to like peak Islamophobic rhetoric of like September 12th, yes. 2001. And we've learned absolutely nothing from 20 mm-hmm. years of killing and dying. So I wonder where you would recommend if there are members of your syndicate or other places where people can find reliable info reporting, which is, you know, fact-checked, which is not overloading them with, you know, like if, if you go on Twitter to try and find your information at the minute, you're just going to get into an argument with someone who has the worst opinions in the world. Uh, and it's not mm-hmm. good. And it, it can dissuade you from taking action in the ways that you've mentioned, which are actually useful. So is there a place you'd suggest people look for information, outlets or individuals they could follow? Well, um, who wants to know the truth will be, will find it. Um, you know, the media is always, any media outlet, it has its, um, it has its mandate and yeah. vision and so on. Mm-hmm. So I just advise everyone when you go for any outlet, media outlet, just try to read about it. What's, what's its mandate, who, who's uh, they are related to, who's are, they are supporting and so on. Or So to know uh, the, the, w- from which perspective you will know the truth. I can't tell now the names of outlets yeah. because um, I, um, it's not me who to, to decide who's, who's the yeah. right one. Um, yeah. As you know, I, am, I work in a syndicate, which is mm-hmm. for, for like a union, which is mm-hmm. for all journalists with all, yeah. with all at, uh, outlets. So they are all our members. So Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I think that's good advice so that people can take more... <laughs> Yeah. It's it's good advice that people can take more broadly because I think people are completely unaware of the ownership of some outlets, their mandate, their yes. perceived yes. biases. Yes. yes. And like, Try to read about them, mm-hmm. not only the news itself, not the, 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 the news itself, but try to see about this outlet, about this um, establishment, how it's working, what their objectives, how do they work, and what are their, their connections and so on. So mm-hmm. you will know which kind of uh, news they are covering and how do yes. they cover it. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, this mm-hmm. is what I can say. For us as Palestinian Journalist Syndicate, we try now to report about journalists because this is our mm-hmm. uh, mandate. This is our work to tell about what's going for our members, to try to get any 
protection for them actually mm-hmm. were were disabled in this yeah. very hard condition but we try to our, our through our friends through our um, relations through our supporters through our uh, memberships and so on to have some um, international support for them through mm-hmm. information through like a flow of information telling what's going on how many mm-hmm. journalists have been killed how many journalists are d- displaced how many and so on so we try to give data those yeah. that are not um as i already told you it's really a hard job that we are going mm-hmm. uh, we are doing now it's getting more and more difficult we are trying to cope trying to develop new tools to cope with this hard very hard situation mm-hmm. but we try our maximum to be uh, honest, to get very real and true information, not to get any misleading information. There's a flow of misleading information. Even we hear about many journalists that they are killed, but when we try to to make sure that we found that they are not journalists, we don't put them them in Mm -hmm. our lists. We try to investigate as much as we can. So to put our lists to Mm -hmm. be limited to journalists, to our mm-hmm. members, to the people who work with us within our, within our mandate and so on. So to be a credible uh, mm-hmm. source, uh, source, source of information. Yeah, I think it's very important. I um, yeah. I, saw, I don't know if you guys who shared it, I showed a video early on. Um, it was when I was still in Syrian Kurdistan, but we were watching it, of a funeral of three journalists who had been killed. Um, yeah. And like... Someone was saying at the funeral that they were speaking and they said someone else will pick up his camera and like keep documenting things, which really was very emotional for me and my friends. Uh, yeah, it was really sad, but... Um, yes, it is. Yes, yeah. I believe you. It's, it's, uh, it's just, you know, that's a thing that I do and I see people, mm-hmm. you know, dressed like me, people I know. Uh, and it's been very... Your coverage of that has been very, I don't know, emotionally challenging for me, but it it's, should be emotionally challenging. It's terrible. Um, but I, th- I think people should definitely tune into it if they can. I wonder, are there like social media accounts that the PJS has that people can follow? Yes, we have a um, um, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, on Facebook, yes. It's a yeah. Palestinian journalist syndicate. Yeah. Um, just uh, And we try to download uh, all our news on it. Also, yeah. we have our website, which is www.pjs.ps. Mm-hmm. Also, you can find some news, statements, updates, and so on. Yeah, that's great. And I encourage people to uh, to, to follow that if they're able to. Um, I wonder, Rene, is there anything else you think that people, are, like anything that's been missing from the media narrative that you'd like people to know about the situation now in Palestine or like the situation more broadly uh, that hasn't been reported on as much as it should be? Um, yeah, yeah. I just want to add something about besides what's going on in Gaza, mm-hmm. uh, even journalists in the West Bank, even in, in uh, Palestinian journalists in Israel mm-hmm. are uh, facing a lot of threats, facing yes. a lot of problems. Um, um, there is a massive uh, campaign of arrests. So up to now, 1,000 in three days, 1,000 persons have been arrested. Um, we're trying to to find the number of journalists, which is, um, Jesus, yeah. I, I'm not sure about it, but I, I can't give you the figure, as mm-hmm. I told you, because of the big number, we're trying to make sure who mm-hmm. are the journalists. But my, uh, uh, yani a massive arrest campaign is taking place now. 
Uh, also, um, journalists are facing a lot of threats about a lot of violations uh, while covering. Um, many times they are uh, prevented from coverage. They are threatened by uh, weapons. They are threatened sometimes by the settlers, uh, armed settlers even, not the mm -hmm. army. Yeah. Um, uh, while covering many of them also they um, they are subject to incitement through uh, social media pages like uh, spreading their photos or their and so to make a kind of incitement uh, how mm -hmm. to kill them or to to get rid of them and so on so also the journalists are facing a very hard time now um, yeah they are yeah. under threat yeah Damn. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, and, and, mm -hmm. and yeah, completely unacceptable. So, um, yeah, I'm yeah. glad you shared that. And I think it's important that people follow this and do whatever they can to help, um, do whatever they can to, to, I don't know, to encourage people to stop bombing other people. Like it's never a good situation mm -hmm. when people are bombing children uh, and hopefully it comes to an end. Like it, I don't know, I've never seen this much outgoing support for Palestine in the United States, but I've also, you know, this is an unprecedented act of, uh, of, uh, I don't know, war crimes. Uh, so it's, it's very hard to see where this is going, I suppose. Yes, we believe that the voice is reaching, um, <laughs> maybe a little by not that fast, not that easy, because it's not easy. But mm -hmm. we believe in every person who thinks and and say no this is inhuman i should not i should be with those people who are under attack who are under uh, 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 under um uh, yeah uh, a lot of hard life yeah it's a hard life uh, a mm -hmm. lot of oppression so yeah. um when we see the as i told you when we see the demonstrations it really gives us power it really gives us that we have right to life you know, this is a minimum right that we need people to tell us, yes, you have a right to life. Yeah, I think that's, it's nice to hear. You know, it, it, it's like a, if you can feel that you're helping, even just helping people feel like a little bit, you know, yeah. elevated, a little bit better, a little bit less despairing. Because I can see how it would be very easy if you're stuck in Gaza to feel like um, the world's abandoned you. Because yes. it has, <laughs> to a large degree, right? Like the world's allowed this to happen. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's American yes. bombs, American planes dropping bombs on little Unfortunately. children. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that's really good to hear. It's good to hear that that um, has made some difference. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I know it's Thank you. Thank you, you, James. Thank you yeah. for having me with you. I wish you all good luck. And thank you. Thank, thank you. you all who listen, listeners to this podcast. Um, I hope that I was able to uh, to give you um, an overview of what's going on and uh, let's pray that this violence will end very soon yes yeah yeah indeed let's um, thank you very much that was wonderful thank you bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> it's spooky week. It could happen here. It's spooky week, the week where things are spooky. Uh, I'm your host, Mia Wong, and with me is Garrison. Hello. Or and hello. today. Fine, whatever. I did it. Alright, alright, we've gotten we've gotten this, we've gotten the, the preliminary spooky out. And so t- today we're gonna be talking about one of the sort of key elements of hol- of Halloween, and that is chocolate. And so on, on, on a very basic level, we're going to ask, what is chocolate? And the answer, and it pains me to say this as someone who really loves chocolate, is really, really bleak. Yeah. But before we get into exactly how bleak it is, uh, we're going to look at sort of the early history of chocolate. So most so okay th- there's there's a lot of disagreement about exactly how old chocolate is i've seen sources that say 3000 bc uh, i've seen sources that say 1700 bc the 1700 bc is the one that's pretty consistent it, it seems like the olmecs had something 
like chocolate. That's a, it's, a, it's a sort of bitter drink that they sometimes yeah. they put vanilla or red pepper in. Yeah, it was it was it was it was like a bitter slurry that you I, from what I hear, not very enjoyable, but it got you like really high, like not high like 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 weed, but like kind of like cocaine. It was it was it was like it was it was a massive stimulant. Is is yeah yeah. From, from what I hear about these kind of early, gross, bitter chocolate slurries. Yeah, and, and you know, and I mean, this is a thing that's, this is not a regular consumption drink. Basically, everyone who uses this, and this, and, and chocolate is consumed by a bunch of different civilizations, like, across, like, most of South America. There's some in sort of, uh, like, the Mayans, obviously the Mayans and the Aztecs, too. There's, there's a lot of places where, where this is being used, and it, it's... Everyone seems to use it for ritual purposes. Yeah, I think at some point the I, I think it was the the Olmecs at some point were doing these like they were they were making fermented alcohol out of so so normally with with chocolate you're using the, like the cocoa beans right but there's like a flesh in the fruit fruit around the beans and they were making like a fermented thing out of that and I don't know I I, I leave as an exercise to the reader whether you count that as chocolate but. The sort of conventional story goes, okay, so like several thousand years after the Olmecs, the Aztecs and the Mayans are using it for ritual purposes, and the story basically is, okay, so Herman Cortez drinks chocolate with the Aztec king Moctezuma, Cortez goes, this is bitter as shit and sucks ass, but he brings it back to Europe anyways, and in Europe, they mix it with sugar, and also with honey, but mostly with sugar, and it becomes, you know, it becomes very, very popular to drink in Europe, and at some point... This is like the 1840s, so like like it takes them about like 300 years to figure out how to make cocoa powder. But once you have cocoa powder, you can it, it's not it ceases to be bitter, like in the in the way that it sort of is naturally. Yeah. You, you can you can process it with like um like a like a basic solutions, which which neutralizes some of the acidic and bitter bitter tastes, which is why. You should always buy Dutch processed cocoa powder, which is unfortunately hard to find these days. But it yeah. is, it is, it is, it is the shit. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's actually, yeah, so the, that's, that's Dutch cocoa. And then 20 years later, someone figures out how to make that into a chocolate bar and, you know, sort of voila, you have chocolate. Now, the conventional histories are missing something very, very important, which is something that defined, has defined the production of chocolate since Europeans got a hold of it and continues to define it today. And that thing is slavery. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is slavery is, is a very sort of important part of the history of chocolate because slavery is what transforms the older ritual chocolate used by a bunch of different indigenous societies for several thousand years into modern chocolate. And and this is a, this is a point that I want to make because most most histories of chocolate tend, you know, when they're trying to find the origin of modern chocolate, they go, oh, it's a chocolate bar. And I think they're wrong. I think they're very wrong. I think the distinct European innovation of chocolate is to add sugar to it. Yes. And this raises the very bleak question, where does sugar come from? And the answer, of course, is slavery. Sugar is one of the primary crops of slave economies in both the colonies and the West Indies. It is one of the key elements of the so-called triangle trade, where you know, you may have, you probably have learned this in school. I... Uh, but, you know, for, for people who've been out of school for a long time, so the triangle trade is Europe sends manufactured goods to Africa. It, it trades that for enslaved people. Enslaved people are taken from Africa 
to the colonies and sometimes to America, sometimes to the, the colonies in the West Indies. Uh, and then they take, you know, the products of slavery from plantations back to Europe. And that's, you know, rice, indigo, tobacco, cotton, molasses, rum, and critically sugar back to Europe. Actually, wait, did, did, they, did they teach you the triangle trade? Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I, okay. I, 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 I did learn my my Christian homeschooling curriculum wasn't the best, but we did <laughs> we did we did cover some basic things. <laughs> it's interesting because the, the, the triangle trade as a model, like, isn't that old, even though even though like this is the way that we all understand, like how the sort of colonial trade work. It's a kind of recent thing. Yeah, so sugar sugar is a very, very key part of this entire thing. And there's a very, very famous, a sort of classic study of sugar and slavery is uh, Sidney W. Mintz's Sweetness and Power, which is a fundamental text in a lot of sort of, uh, I don't know, a lot of the sort of fields around the study of slavery. And one of his arguments is that the British industrial proletariat is fueled by slave sugar because the sugar is a stimulant. That, you know, they're putting it in tea, which is another stimulant. They're putting it in whatever they drink. And this is a thing that allows them to keep working for longer than they otherwise would have been able to. Yeah, and this also was the origin of Britain's probably largest cultural trait, bad teeth. Um. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so so this is, this is, this is a... <laughs> many aspects of British culture are, are descended from, <laughs> from slavery. Oh... <laughs> uh. And, you know, but but the other the other important thing for our story is that sugar is what makes chocolate sort of palatable to Europeans. And and this is an, an, a sort of interesting thing that Europeans do. Um, you know, they do this with tobacco, too, where you, you haven't you have something that you're only supposed to use in fairly small amounts for ritual yeah. purposes. Right. And the Europeans are like, OK, but what if we purified the shit out of it and they just ate it literally every day? Yeah. Have you ever tried like unsweetened 100% like chocolate liquor? Uh, it or fucking it, it, sucks. I hate it. It's not good. <laughs> you, you can certainly nibble. It, it can be a fun novelty to nibble, but you certainly wouldn't want to eat like a whole bar of it. Yeah, it's it's some real oh boy. Yeah, so like I mean, it makes sense that they added sugar to it, but the, the consequence of this is that. We can ask, we can finally ask the question right now, now, now that it's been transformed by sugar into this object of sort of popular consumption, we can ask the question, what is chocolate? And the answer is that chocolate is colonialism plus slavery. It is a fusion of cocoa, which is an indigenous ritual drink seized as a part of the wages of colonialism by the European empires and sugar, a slave crop that drove the colonial plantation economy. And, you know, you, you might say, Mia, you're, you know, you're being harsh here, right? Even if we accept your argument about chocolate in the 1600s, surely, surely no, that's not cool. true now. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't slavery abolished in the 1800s? And now I assume, I assume Nestle's farming practices are totally above board. See, and, and this, this is, I think, the interesting part of the story is... Uh, Gare, like our readers, is assuming a thing I'm about to launch into here is the Mars Nestle child slavery lawsuit. And we will, because that is a critical element of, of slavery and chocolate production. But there is also still slavery and sugar production. Capitalism. And, and, and not only is there slavery and sugar production, there is slavery and sugar production in the exact same places there were slavery and sugar production 500 years ago. And this is one of the sort of stunning things about, you know, the, the, the myths of capitalism, right? Which is that, okay, capitalism has had 400, you know, I, I'm going to give them a bit of credit 
and be like, okay, I don't know, like I, I, I'm going to I'm going to give capitalism a little bit of credit and give it only with being responsible for 400 years of this and not 500 years of this. Because, you know, whatever, complicated arguments about whether the capitalist transition is in the 1500s or 1600s. But, you know, they have had 400 years to solve the problem of slavery on Hispaniola. Has it done that? No, it is. There is still slavery on the island of Hispaniola 400 years later. (laughs) But we're going to be discussing in a second. Still, the best possible thing here is that maybe and, 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 and this is it is arguable maybe last year we there stopped being slaves there now i don't even think that i don't think that's true and we're gonna get into to that but you know b- before before we sort of launch into you know what like whether or not there are still slaves on sugar plantations in, in the dominican republic if you have had 400 years to solve a problem and you have not solved it you are never going to solve it Hey, hey, let's not let's let's not pigeonhole ourselves here. There's a lot of things that have been around for 400 years that ought not to be. That's true. But if if you're if if you are an economic system and your economic system has been you are supposed to have you are supposed to have dealt with this at least 200 years ago. But, you know, we've arrived here. And so this is something we've talked about before in the show, at least a bit. We've arrived here at. One of the real weaknesses of both sort of liberal and radical accounts of of how the capitalist economy works, because both sets of accounts take as their starting point the fact that capitalism is based on free labor, that it's free people who enter into contracts to sell you their labor, and that forced labor is this sort of like holdover from older economic systems. No, I actually just saw a thing today on the dying remains of Twitter about how Capitalism is the only economic system that is not ba- that's not based on exploitation or violence. It's based yeah. on free trade between markets. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> people really believe this shit. It's like I I I don't know. Like I don't know. At at, so, at some point, I'm gonna do an episode about. There's a really good book whose name I'm forgetting right now because I didn't look this up beforehand. But there's a really good book on these sort of dueling forced labor systems driving the tea economy in the late 1800s. So that there's there's one forced labor system in China and a different forced labor system in India that are both warring at each other to control the tea market. It is certainly interesting <laughs> how much tea has impacted like geopolitics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, like, we'll, we'll, we'll do an episode on that one day. Yeah. Tea's not that great, guys. I'm sorry. It's fine. Not tea rips. But- tea rips. I would not. We, we just don't have good tea here. I would not do as much killing as people have done for oh, tea. Oh no, it's absolutely! Just, it's, like, it's, it's not it's, worth killing anyone over. The number of people who've been killed over it is like an Earl really Grey is fine on like a rainy afternoon, but come on. Yeah, it's not. It's not worth like conquering continents for. <sighs> but okay, so we'll back, back, back to the sort of main plot that is not tea. That is in fact chocolate. So one one of the things that we can learn that we learn from this is that. You know, forced labor is not just a holdover. It's been a it's been a central part of capitalism for as long as capitalism has existed. And given its current track record, it will be a part of capitalism for as long as it exists. And, you know, so there's always been a a racial component to this, right? This is like trivially obvious, right? Like there's a racial component to slavery. Like, holy shit, it's mostly about race. But I I think, you know, we can we can expand this a little bit and, and it gets you to a some sort of interesting things, which is that. Race is one of, you know, so like obviously capitalism is supposed to be based on wage labor, but race is what mediates your access to wage labor in the first place. 
So, you know, white, like if you're an American, right, like white Americans have basically always been able to get access to, to wage labor, you know, and as shitty as wage labor is, it's <laughs> it's not as bad as the other things you can get forced into, yeah. you know, but yeah. So like if you're black, like, you know, what you get is successive forms of slavery. If you're indigenous, they tried to enslave you and then either sort of kept doing it or gave up and just killed, just did the genocide. Uh, Asian people like um, who came to this continent and also sort of the West Indies largely get debt peonage and indentured servitude. And you know, you can, you, you can sort of work this out so on and so forth. There's, there's different like modes of stuff that are the normal sort of like what you by default have access to if you are X race. Right. Yeah. And obviously this, this sort of racial access to wage labor is spread across the world. You know, your, your access to wage labor is dependent on sort of your subject position as colonizer and colonized as well as, you know, you're sort of global and also you're like local racial hierarchies because, oh boy, can that shit be really fucked up? But the upshot of this is that many of the descendants of enslaved Haitian people are still effectively enslaved today on sugar plantations in the Dominican Republic. And so we're going to we're going to tell that story. But first, we're. Oh, God. Do you know what does? Mm. No, I, I cannot guarantee that our products and services are slave free. Like, I wish I could, but. Well, do you know what is also here for a spooky time this Halloween? That's right. <laughs> These products and services. OK, we are back. I'm drinking my not mocha coffee, drinking my regular unsweetened coffees. Therefore, totally fine. No oh, yeah, problems. Yeah. I'm sure no, there's nothing I mean, everything's all shady. No, nothing bad. Nothing bad has ever happened in the history of coffee. No, I, I'm here. No tea, <laughs> no chocolate. I'm safe. I'm good. Uh, anyway, so continue. unfortunately, the people who are not safe is uh, Haitians in the Dominican Republic. So we are not going to do an entire history of slavery in the Dominican Republic because because this is a chocolate episode and yeah. we only have so much time. <laughs> yeah, you know, for for many reasons. But one of the things that happened in in so we're 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 going we're going to look at sort of the like the modern history of this. And by modern I'm starting in I'm starting it in the 80s because I I have to pick a place. Now, one of the things that happens in the 1980s is that the Dominican army effectively so goes into Haiti or just recruits Haitian people who are in the Dominican Republic and are like, hey, you're going to OK, we have like jobs for you. Like, come like do this work. And so a bunch of people get in like these like army vans and then they get there and they get marched out of the van. A bunch of guys point guns at them and go, you're going to work for free or we're going to or like or we're going to kill you. So this is really bad. Um, and this is this is how a lot of like through the 80s and kind of early 90s, this is how a lot of sugar production worked in the Dominican Republic. And, you know, it's, it's very notable here that Dominican Republic produces a lot of sugar and it produces a lot of sugar that specifically the U.S. uses. Now, this is like state run slavery, right, on sort of like state run plantations. So then we had neoliberalism. And so the state run plantations get privatized. However, comma, <laughs> they still run on... Slave labor. So there, there's a very good Mother Jones uh, report about this. I'm going to I'm going to read some of it here. Kakata is one of about 100, according to a local missionary's estimate, isolated camps scattered around central Romana. Central Romana is a giant uh, sugar plantation. 
Central Romana's 160,000 acres of sugarcane, a tract almost as big as New York City. Most of the workers and their families live in these batailles, rising in the morning to work the cane in the punishing heat, clearing weeds, slashing, and spraying the stalks. Nearly all are men of Haitian descent. Some were trafficked back in the day of... The journalist who's doing this uh, was the guy who basically uncovered a bunch of the, the original armies, like the military slavery program in the 90s, and so he went back, like, a couple of years ago... <laughs> So he's talking about some of some of the some of the people were trafficked back to the military slavery program. Others were born and lived stateless, and others came from Haiti more recently, paying uh, paying smugglers to sneak them across the border. For years, the government has resisted providing legal status to people of Haitian heritage in the country, even those born there. An estimated two hundred thousand people, who for generations have been demeaned by race and class, are stateless. For the men in the camps, Chantra Romana is the state. Their villages are patrolled by armed company police empowered to evict. Central Romana owns the land where the Haitians work, the rail cars where they weigh and load the cane and stocks, and the dwellings where they sleep. They are miles from the nearest Dominican town not controlled by the company. So things going great here. Um, yeah. And the conditions, you know, okay, so so the, 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 the sort of the capitalist reforms that neoliberalism has brought to this system are... The number of child slaves has decreased dramatically because that was a big thing when the first reporting went out. Everyone was like, holy shit, there's a bunch of child slaves. This is a terrible Progress. thing. <laughs> yeah. So we have less child slaves. Right. Progress. We did it. And, Joe. you know, so instead of of the child slaves, right, it's now mostly adults. Um, but the conditions here are still effectively slavery, even even after the sort of child slavery stuff like is driven under. On a good day, these workers make $3 a day, and they are effectively and sometimes literally unable to leave. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this. One of the big ones is that most of the workers there are most like basically all like you you might find a worker somewhere who isn't stuck in this, but they're caught in these debt traps uh, by Central Romana, who and these these are like classic company, but they're not, they're worse than than like a you know the classic American company town because at least in American company town you can go to another town that is not controlled by the company, whereas these people like cannot, and so they're caught in these debt traps by uh, Central Romana, which is the the company that owns this, these plantations, and because they're so in debt, they're constantly forced to work for the company in order to pay off their debt. But, you know, they never actually make enough money to pay the debt off. And so they have to take on more debt to survive until, you know, and largely what happens is these people work there in debt until they die. This is classic debt peonage, where sort of debt transforms people into the effective property of the debt holder who exacerbate the debt by denying them the ability to live without taking on more debt. A very common way this happens is with medical debt, which is something I, you know, I think we're familiar with to some extent here, but is egregiously worse and the other thing that, that I was realizing about this is that this is actually really eerily similar to the way that Cortez and the conquistadors enslaved indigenous people during the genocide. Yeah. They, they would do the same thing of like, well, okay, now you're in debt to me. And because you can't pay the debt, you have 500% interest per week. And so, you know, the debt just accumulates and now you work for me for the rest of your lives. And this is, you know, this is one of the one of the sort of ways in which this the long shadow of Spanish imperialism like looms over, over the Dominican Republic, even in what has really been about 200 years of uh, the age of the American empire, you know, and, and 
and as you know, obviously, like as much of an effect as the Spanish Empire has had here, and oh God, it's not good. Today, it is the American Empire that lines the pockets of the slavers of the Dominican Republic. So, Central Romana is owned by this this family called the Fanjul family, who are these uh, uh, Cuban expats who run. Uh, this like enormous resort and shit where they live in Florida and are handed and, and this is really fun 150 million dollars by the American state every year in the form of price supports for sugar so like you're an American right like obviously your, your, your tax money very obviously goes to support slavery because we have prisons and so your, your taxes are paying to enslave people but your taxes are also paying for slavery in other countries it's incredible. Really, really great stuff from the from the American political system here. And, you know, and the way this has been maintained is through you know, like two. I think in the last 20 years, Mother Jones reported they've they've spent the, the sugar lobby has spent two hundred and twenty million dollars on campaign contributions and lobbying. And it works really well. They've been able to influence the system for a very, very long time. The other funny thing about the Fundrill family is that. They've created the perfect political trap, which is so one of one of the brothers is like a Trump guy and the other person is a Hillary supporter. And they're both like incredibly enmeshed in both of the circles. So it's great. Uh, thing, thing, things are going very good. So after so the, the Mother Jones investigation was like in the last uh, I think it was. Like. Last year, the year before. And when the Mother Jones investigation about the fact that like all of this shit was still happening came out, uh, there was a there was a giant uproar about it, and a couple of things happened. One is that so the, the village that the journalists had visited, uh, Central Romana, like they didn't even bulldoze the villages; they blew everyone's houses down with like sledgehammers and forcibly moved them to like other villages and separated people's families. So that's that's great. And then, so in late 2022, under under pressure from this reporting, the U.S. government like banned imports from that specific company. And okay, it's unclear what is going to happen with it. If you know, if if they're going to get unbanned eventually, uh, if it's going to stick, if they're just going to like, I don't know, like transfer the assets to another company or something and use that instead. As, so as of right now, this specific set of plantations is not able to export sugar to the U.S. So this is this is as much of a victory over slavery as we're going to get in this episode. And this victory that's, is incredibly reassuring. That's not. No, that's it's not. only going to get worse. This is this is the peak of of anti-slavery stuff we're going to see here. Yeah, so yeah. enjoy it while you can. And do you know what else you should enjoy? Oh, the, the, these products and services that support <laughs> yes. this podcast? That's good. Yes. This is, this is the real peak of the episode, folks. All right, I am rejuvenated by the advertising industrial complex. I feel ready to hear other tales of great progress. Woo! Okay, so now now we're now we're going to turn to the type of slavery that everyone I think expected this episode to mostly be about, which is the fact that cocoa bean production is also largely produced by slave labor. So, okay, I'm I'm going to I'm going to read a bit from a report by the Food Empowerment Project, which has done some very good work on 
well, sp- like specifically slavery in West Africa, they're also one of the only media people I've ever seen talk about the fact that a lot of this stuff, it's not exactly the same, but a lot of the sort of slavery stuff also seems to be happening on plantations in Brazil, but there's effectively no coverage of it that's not in Portuguese. I don't know. So like eventually one day, I guess, like the fact that the other places other than West Africa have slavery will hit the the Anglophone media class or whatever. But until then, I'm, I'm going to read uh, this section. In West Africa, cocoa is a commodity crop grown primarily for export. Cocoa is the Ivory Coast primary export and makes up about half the country's agricultural export in volume. Most cocoa farmers earn less than $1 a day, an income below the extreme poverty line. As a result, they often resort to the use of child labor to keep their prices competitive. In many Com- cases, competitive. this is... Yeah, yeah. This is... Whew. One of the things that happens when, you, when you're reading about child slavery stuff is even people who, like, are trying to you know, draw attention to how bad this is. You get stuff like that. That's like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they're they're making sub $1 a day. They're using child labor. In many cases, this includes what the the international labor organization calls quote, the worst form of child labor. Okay. (laughs) These are defined as practices quote, likely to harm the health, safety, or morals of children. Approximately 2.1 million children in Ivory Coast and Ghana work on cocoa farms, most of whom are likely exposed to the worst form of child labor, which is also really good that like we've 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 cap- capitalism has finally reached the, you know, the, the apex of its, of its control of the commanding heights of the world economy, which means that we're talking about we're, we're trying to make tier lists of how bad child labor is. Well, yeah, I mean, a whole bunch of child labor laws just got, like, rolled back across many, uh, many states here yeah, in it's this really great good. country. So it's very exciting. The children very, yearn for the mines. It's yeah, it's, 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 it's great. You know, so, so obviously a lot of the, the, the child slavery on cocoa farms are from sort of, like, larger, I mean, I guess they are corporate, but from sort of, like, larger plantations, <laughs> But also, lest you think that it's better on family farms, no, family farms, I mean, I guess it is technically better than, like, being kidnapped and enslaved, is merely doing child labor on your family's, like, cocoa yeah, just farm. Yeah, just, just being born into <laughs> these pretty, pretty, uh, not great labor practices that you really have no say in or any agency whatsoever, yeah. Yeah, and, like, you know, this is one of these things where, like, the, the economic conditions are so bad that people are people are facing impossible choices. And and I think we can say that they make the wrong choice, which is a, a lot of. OK, so like there, there are there are sort of different ways that children get trafficked into slavery work. Um, a lot of them are sold by their own families who do not have enough resources to take care of them and are like, OK, we'll we'll basically sell these people so they can go do this job. And these families don't know that like their child was about to be enslaved right they're just like okay well they're going to go off and do work but the other way that this happens is that kids from like villages in other countries like there's a a lot of focus on mali as one of the places this happens from but yeah so there's a lot of these effect what are effectively raids into into mali from the ivory coast to like steal children and it also happens in Burkina faso you know and this gets to the point where, you know, I'm going to read a quote from one of these uh, from from this report again. 
In one village in Burkina Faso, almost every mother in the village has had a child trafficked onto cocaine farms. Traffickers will then sell children to cocaine farmers. So, this is like the worst paranoid fantasies of every American right-winger, except it's, you know, this is just how chocolate is made. Yeah, this is, you know, all of all of the Sound of Freedom guys, uh, with all of, you know, the whole uproar around that movie earlier this year versus all of them uh yeah enjoying their little m&ms and kit kats yep. and, and hey i i like the occasional kit kats too this is this is a uh, a massive problem <laughs> i i don't know i really love chocolate i have not eaten any chocolate since i started researching this and i like <laughs> and, it's, and it's but it sucks because it's like you can't you can't I and mean, we're gonna get into more of this in a second but like you can't like ethically consume your way out of this, right? Like but, because the conditions of But free trade cocoa exists. Oh boy, yeah, we're going to get into that. But yeah, the, like there's there's no there's no actual systemic like there's no way that you can like you, you can't change this stuff with your individual consumption habits. And you know, that's something that's just really fucking bleak about this because these conditions are I mean, as bad as you can possibly imagine, uh, but the Food Empowerment Project describes like children as young as five are forced to work up to 14 hours a day, like chopping down cocoa pods and then chopping them open with machetes. And sometimes these people get sometimes these kids are using chainsaws to like clear wood, like clear down like forests. Yeah. And, you know, okay, so this goes exactly how you expect it to go, which is a bunch of these kids just have a bunch of fucking scars from when they've been slashed by machetes. Because, again, you are handing machetes to children, some of whom are as young as five. And then they have to carry 100 pound bags of cocoa beans through the jungle. And this is the thing that's also happening in the Dominican Republic. And this happens a lot in a lot of places is that. They just get, you know, when, when, when companies want to spray like their farms with pesticides, right? They don't even bother even like clearing people out, which might, you know, help like a tiny bit to make them not like die from fucking poison. But no, they, like these, these, these fucking dipshits just like spray them with toxic chemicals as just like spray them with pesticides. Like a lot of whom are carcinogens. Um, a lot of, and this is happening in, in the Dominican, the sugarcane fields in the, in the Dominican Republic too. And a lot of those people just fucking died because, you know, they were sprayed with these chemicals. There was a really terrible story of of a, of a of a guy who was trying to sue Central Romana and just fucking died from the like he wasn't able to get a payout from the lawsuit because he died in 2020 before the lawsuit could like finish. So here's another great quote from the Food Empowerment Project. The farm owners using child labor usually provide the children with the cheapest food available, such as corn paste or the cassava and bananas that grow in the surrounding forest. In some cases, the children sleep on wooden planks in small windowless buildings without access to clean water or sanitary bathrooms. And, you know, another key part of this, right, is like, okay, so the conditions are obviously unbearably bad, but, you know, a key part of this, like any system of slavery, is the physical violence against the enslaved people who are repeatedly and often beaten and abused and tortured in ways that are very reminiscent of sort of like older epochs of slavery if they try to escape. Now, this is the, the companies care about this to the extent that it's bad PR. Yes. And the chocolate companies repeated like the chocolate companies. OK, they they signed a thing in the year 2000 
where they said we're going to eliminate child's the worst forms of child slavery by 2005. Yeah, like this is this has been a known issue for like yeah. over two decades. Now, Garrison, yes, what year is it right now? <laughs> uh, the year of our Lord, 2023. Yeah, they have been they have been promising to end child slavery in these uh, in, for no, 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 no. The worst, the worst. Forms that's of true. Child well, so originally they were supposed to be ending child slavery, and then and then they they scaled it down to the worst forms. Only the worst. <laughs> but they have been promising to do this for longer than you have been alive. Yes, correct. Which is terrifying. Now, yes, it's, yes. And and as we'll get into later, right? The number of child slaves is higher than it was when they started doing these child slave reduction efforts. So quote unquote reduction efforts, which are just sort of PR bullshit. So industry lobbying groups are also very, very powerful. And this is part of part of how this stuff persists. So the university of Chicago has a center called NORAC, which is like a public research center. Um, I don't know. I went to that fucking school. I don't trust any of these motherfuckers. And neither should you, because it turns out there was so. OK, so they, they released this report on how bad child slavery is. Right. But there was a leak of the original version of the report that was supposed to come out. And the, the original version of the report has the number of child slaves at like two point two million. Now, when the report actually comes out with no justification whatsoever and using a bunch of numbers for child slavery that are from before COVID-19, the NORAC report was like, ah, oh, there's only like 1.6 million child slaves. So 600,000 child slaves just sort of vanished in an editorial process after they got they came under fire from uh, <laughs> the they came under fire from the chocolate lobby. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's round that down. It makes it makes it yeah. a little easier to palette. Well, and, and the other thing that it hides is that there's been a 10 to 15 percent increase in the number of 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 child slaves working in like in the co in in cocoa since COVID started because COVID has been a, a, a giant sort of, you know, the, the economic damage that COVID caused forced a bunch of people into, into, you know, increasingly desperate things. And, you know, okay. So uh, we, 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 we tease this a little bit and you might be thinking, well, I can eat fair trade chocolate, right? I can pay $10 for a chocolate bar. So it's fair trade on it and it will, and that will make sure that I'm only eating chocolate produced by free labor. Nope. The certifications for the chocolate are fucking bullshit. You're still eating slave chocolate. Um, the, the, the follow is an excerpt from a study conducted by the Corporate Accountability Lab on the failure of initiatives in the chocolate industry like certifications. Quote, in order to understand the gap between consumer perception and farmer impact better, we brought certified chocolate bars to villages where some or all of the farmers were certified. We held up the bar with the label and explained to the farmers what consumers expected out of the label. Primarily that farmers were paid a fair price, earned a decent living, and certain practices like child labor and deforestation were not present. We also explained the difference in retail price between fair trade and uncertified chocolate. The overwhelming response from farmers to this information was shock and outrage. One farmer pulled out his worn shirt in front of him and asked if it looked like he earned a decent living. A woman in one village said she can hardly afford to send her children to school, so how could anyone think she earned a fair price? 
Our farmer consultations revealed virtually imperceptible differences between certified and uncertified farms in terms of living incomes, poverty, education, access to health care, farmer bargaining power, or access to information. So, yeah, the, the, all the people who are telling you they're doing some fair trade shit, they're keeping your money, and the places they're getting it from are as fucked as, the, as Hershey's. Yeah. So this is bad. Now, you, you might also think, okay, we can get out of this by buying from cocoa cooperatives, except, except, and this is a wonderful thing that capitalism has wrought on the world, uh, most cocoa collectives aren't actually, like, workers collect, like, aren't actually co-ops. No, they're I'm just sure sort they're of all People's Republic of Chocolate Farmers. I'm, I'm sure they're all <laughs> reciting well, the is, little red book. <laughs> this is something actually. This is something that China actually pioneered because there's there's a bunch of firms in China that are also tech. Actually, we, I talked about this in my did an episode, a bastard's episode, a long time ago about this milk company that poisoned three hundred thousand babies, uh-huh. and that company was technically a co-op, but like it was a co-op uh-huh. in the sense that. There was a small group of workers who were basically managers who owned shares, and then they just hired every sourced everything out to independent contractors. So okay. it functioned like a normal company. Yeah. And this is a thing a lot. This the cocoa trade stuff is actually worse because most of these things that are called co-ops aren't even co-ops at all. They're just set up by cocoa growers as like fake co-ops. And there are there are like a very, very small number of 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 these cocoa farms that are actually workers' cooperatives, but there's no way to tell which one is which. Unless you spend a bunch of time like actually going and tracking the cooperatives down. So there's no sort of like ethically way out of this, right? You're just kind of, you're, you know, like you can't, you can't eat your way out of this problem. And of course, everything across the board, all the con- these conditions have gotten worse since the pandemic. So, you know, it, it's, it's not only is capitalism not making things better, every, like things are in fact getting worse. Now, all right, I promised you the lawsuits. Uh, we're we're going to talk a bit about the lawsuits. So there were actually two big lawsuits. There were eight people from Mali who were enslaved by cocoa plantations after being trafficked from Mali, sued Nestle, Cargill, Barry, Calabar, I don't know, some French shit, Mars, Alam, Hershey's, and Modeles to try to get compensation from the companies by virtue of the fact that the companies sold products made by their child slave labor. <laughs> Yeah. Now, there's also a separate lawsuit against slightly different companies. So a lot of the same companies, slightly different. That's using a different set of legal arguments. Both of the lawsuits have been thrown out. And, and I want to take a second to, to look at the reasoning here, both of which are sort of just amazing. So I think the most famous one is the Supreme Court's eight to one decision that said, well, so like all this stuff happened, but it happened outside the U.S. So you can't sue companies for it here. Which is an amazing piece of logic, which is just like, oh, yeah, no, actually, like corporations like American corporations could just go everywhere else and do crimes. And this is and the American legal system is specifically written in such a way that, like, if, if, if an American corporation enslaves you in, like, the Ivory Coast, there's nothing you can do about it in the U.S. And then a judge in D.C. throughout the other case, because. You know, their argument was, well, you can't prove that the companies knew you were being enslaved on those farms. There's no, quote, traceable connection between the people who enslaved you and the company. So there's nothing we can do. And the the reason both these arguments work is the reason for the structure of the chocolate market, right? The, the reason cocoa plantations in the Ivory Coast and also in Brazil 
can get away with this. You know, well, the reason that the, those plantations are in the Ivory Coast or Brazil or other places, the reason they're happening there and not in the U.S. is because these are places where you can get away with that level of exploitation and corporate violence that, you know, in the U.S. would be a lot more difficult. And this shields them from legal liability. Furthermore, instead of just, you know, jumping, instead of just running the cocoa plantations themselves, which these companies could easily do, right? This is a very, very large trade. They could just sort of like, they could just vertically, vertically, not even vertically integrate. They could just actually make chocolate. Like they could just run the process and they just, they very specifically choose not to do it. And the reason they choose not to do it, this is a hundred billion dollar industry, right? But but instead, they what they choose to do is to just buy cocoa from the chocolate market where all these sort of nebulous producers sell, which allows the chocolate companies to go, oh, well, these people don't work for us. We just buy chocolate from the market. How are we supposed to know uh, which yeah, of these so plantations use slave labor? <laughs> so it puts like one degree of separation. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually two degrees. It's an additional degree of separation from the way something like Walmart works, right? Where Walmart has a bunch of independent contractors. This isn't even contractors. They're just buying finished products from co- things they're like ta- they're com- like completely unaffiliated with and this gives them like it gives, gives them like two degrees of legal separation because it's not it's not just that their contractors are doing something that they didn't know about it's that they're just buying it right and this fucking sucks um and you know since laws exist to protect the ruling class judges and courts can just wave their hands and go well these companies definitely enslaved you, but uh, we, we have no choice but to let them comp- off completely scot-free, so sorry about that. And I want to end today with something that has been running through my mind every s- since I fucking started researching this, which is that the bourgeoisie must pay for their crimes, the state has failed, the court has failed, the NGOs have failed, and if anything is ever going to fucking happen that forces these companies to be in Anyway, if there is to be like a single iota of justice for the fact that all of these companies have been fucking gorging themselves on the profits of slave labor at all, uh, we are going to do it or no one is. So congratulations, uh, you, the American worker, it is unfortunately incumbent on you to deal with these fucking corporations that have been destroying the entire world. So, yeah, happy spooky week, everyone. Yes, this is very scary. Yeah. Well, thank you for that lovely, uh, depressing presentation, uh, Mia. Um, I mean, I guess is is there is there is there a sort of takeaway besides there's no ethical consumption under capitalism? I mean, like, <sighs> I mean, uh, cap- capitalism will never abolish slavery. I know, I, one. I, I know there is one U.S. state where they grow chocolate, uh, which is Hawaii, which has its own oh, problems yeah. of colonization. So even if you try to <laughs> yep. buy from a place that is, you know, arguably has less chocolate slavery, it's g- generally better produced. It still is. You're still implicating yourself in 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 uh, all of the problems relating to like uh, the independence of that island. Um, and the U.S.'s colonization, so it's 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 it, we're really just really just kind of trapped on all sides here, uh, is what it feels yeah. like. At I least mean, in this terms is a this Halloween chocolate problem. Yeah, and I mean, and I I think I think the the way to think about this right is that this this is an actual systemic issue, right? This is a systemic thing capitalism has been doing for about four hundred years, like since its entire existence. And if you want to if you want to end it. <laughs> We have to you have to actually 
you it's not it's not even enough to destroy these companies, right? Because even if you brought down every single one of these chocolate companies, right, there would just be another round of chocolate companies that would be doing exactly the same shit. So you have to you you have to destroy the system of property by which these things are allowed to exist. And at that point, maybe you can start on being able to eat food that isn't produced by slave labor. It it turns out Willy Wonka was the villain the whole time. You know, I I was trying to think about the amount of slave labor that we see from him versus the amount of slave labor uh, in actual lot. chocolate. We see a lot of and slave labor from yeah, Willy Wonka. It's, <laughs> it's a it's I think Wonka is using more slave labor, but not by as much as it should be. I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 hard to say. I think I I think it's pretty clear that. Wonka's use of slave labor is just an accurate representation of the, yeah, yeah. Of, of the real life <laughs> yes. chocolate industry. Yes. So yeah, go 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 enjoy your weekend and then go enjoy uh, that new fucking Twink Wonka movie that looks I have to say, dog shit. Oh yeah. Bad terrible bad casting. worst idea bad worst casting. idea anyone's had since capitalism. Twink Wonka, I'm sorry, it doesn't slap. I, I Zero out of ten. Uh, anyway, well, uh, tune in in the next few days for uh, uh, two more Spooky Week episodes for you. We only got we only got three this week because there's a lot of other news happening. But yeah, we at least have two other Spooky Week episodes that I am about to finish working on. So stay tuned for that. Goodbye. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.